0: Welcome to Small Screeners, where we look at direct-to-video and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris. I got AJ here with me. Say hello, AJ.
1: What's up, y'all? This is AJ.
0: And, you know, it's uh, October, Halloween season, so we thought we'd do some spooky stuff uh, this month. And we got a double feature. (laughs) We got a double feature for you this episode. And the idea is sort of to look at two, what some people would call... The Ultimate Masters of Horror, John Carpenter, and Stephen King. I know AJ's a big fan of both those guys. Hell yeah. <laughs> so they both have King has several uh TV movies to his credit, movies based on his work and stuff. That was a lot of those came in the uh in the 90s with it and the Tommy Knockers, etc.
1: The Stand. And, Can't forget the Stand.
0: And the Stand, yep. And Carpenter has more TV work than I think initially I realized because uh, (laughs) he has the one we're going to talk about tonight someone's watching me made for tv thriller from 78 and he also has the tv movie Elvis with Kurt Russell but through uh, the blu-ray of this that that screen factory put out of this flick someone's watching me I learned that he has written a lot of screenplays for movies that uh, had turned into tv movies like uh, in the 80s and 90s so found that kind of interesting
1: yeah i know there's one that he wrote about killer snakes Mm -hmm. that one the title eludes me right now i think it's called deadly predators or some shit like that
0: (laughs) yeah it's got Um, harry hamlin in it apparently
1: yeah yeah everybody's favorite la law guy (laughs) <laughs> uh, as long as you pretend Jimmy Smiths doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. I know that, that was an the, unfair shot. To, I have seen um, another one that he wrote that was made for HBO called El Dorado. Yeah, kind of like a revisiting revisionist, think that's the only, revisionist.
0: Like, traditional western. He's done anything with, right?
1: Yeah, I really like that. It's kind of got a real sick sense of black humor in parts. Mm-hmm. It, it's surprisingly funny, and you know, Lewis Gossett Jr. is the lead. Really and he's great it's i really like it. i i have it around here somewhere on dvd <laughs> oh, <that's cool. laughs> old snapper case style <laughs> hbo dvd
0: now uh i know he wrote eyes of laura mars but that was a theatrical release wasn't it yeah i've Star got Fate that i've done away i've got a copy of that that i haven't watched yet i've not got it purely because carpenter wrote the screenplay and another one that i watched because i think it was on prime at one point a year or Are you two ago. Talk
1: about black moon rising
0: oh yeah yeah. Tommy Lee Jones uh, action flick from the mid 80s, which was pretty fun. I kind of liked it. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's looks not like a, the
1: greatest, but it's, you know, the car is cool.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. And Tommy Lee Jones is good. Yeah. Um, and
1: Linda Hamilton. Mm-hmm,
0: yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple other TV movies. Uh, you mentioned El Diablo, 1990, uh, a movie called Blood River from 1991, which I've never uh, really heard of looks like ricky schroeder is the lead in it according to the box art okay um, <laughs> so yeah silent predators was the snake flick from 1999 silent predators
1: yeah uh, yeah my yeah. bad that's so much better
0: <laughs> so yeah that's that's pretty much his 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 tv work but i more than i had realized anyway
1: yeah yeah he's uh he's definitely done some stuff there his best is, you know, I mean, I'd say it's either between Elvis and the one we're going to talk about today, depending on what you really, you know, what your likes are.
0: Yeah. Elvis is still, I've had the Elvis blue that Shout put out for probably three years now, mm. and it's still the the elusive final Carpenter movie that I have not watched yet. How fucking uh,
1: elusive it, can it be if it's in your house, man?
0: Exactly. It's just, <laughs> part of it is like, do I want to sit down and watch a two and a half hour movie about Elvis?
1: Yeah, It's Kurt Russell, you do. It's fucking killer. Uh, I can't believe you've had that movie for three years a John Carpenter, Kurt Russell movie for three (laughs) years. And you have, look, I'm not trying to judge you, but I will say that if you don't watch it soon, the chances are good you're never going to see Heaven's Light. (laughs) I'm just going to say it that way.
0: Well, I I imagine eventually I'll pick it for one of our movies for this show. Can I do that?
1: (laughs) Can I make that happen sooner than later? (laughs) Um, But
0: yeah, I I want to see it. I just, you know, I don't know. I I, I will. I'll see it. Within a year, I will have seen it.
1: But I'm picking in November...
0: yeah someone's watching me uh this is a movie we're gonna try and talk about without a whole lot of spoilers just because it is something that i feel like is not super seen like for a long time i don't think it was available it was i don't know if it was considered a lost super
1: hard to find
0: yeah i don't know if it was ever released on vhs but uh i don't think it got a dvd release until like what the teens the 20 teens maybe
1: I think so. Um,
0: and then more recently, Shout Factory or Scream Factory put out a, a, a special edition Blu-ray of it. Oh, um, yeah,
1: hail Shout and Scream Factory! <laughs> but the it was Lord's one of the
0: last there. Carpenter movies that I I watched. I, I really got into trying to complete his filmography in like the early 2010s, probably. That's when I finally got Assault on Precinct 13 and Christine. And,
1: and for whatever reason, Elvis doesn't count. We get it, Chris. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I I do like this movie. Uh, it is a, I mean, it's a TV movie from 1978, it so it did play theatrically, I think, in Europe and in certain places. The Blu-ray has a uh, cool feature where you can watch it in a widescreen format or the way it was filmed for television with like the black bars on the side. So, what did you choose?
1: I'm pretty sure the first time I watched my blue, it was in the widescreen, but that just mats it at the top. You know what I mean? And so today I went, I was like, I'm just going to watch it the way it was shot for TV. And it was cool. It worked fine.
0: Yeah, I I watched it. I watched it that way as well, just because like this is a TV movie. Might as well get that TV feel from the picture as well, because that's how everything looked back then on when it was for television. And Um, if a
1: story is doing its job after a while, you forget anyway, you're just mm -hmm. watching it. And I did. This is at least that good to be that involving.
0: (laughs) And uh, Carpenter filmed this. Apparently he filmed Someone's Watching Me, Halloween, and Elvis all in the same year. He did this, and I think reports vary between 10 to 18 days for the filming of this movie. And I believe less than a week after he finished filming this, he started work on filming halloween so it was almost back you know pretty much back to back
1: well yeah i heard it was two weeks but that he just like two weeks later he was filming Mm -hmm. you know like halloween was up and going in two weeks after after finishing this one so that's nuts but i mean it's also very cool because watching this you can kind of see he's 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 getting warmed up you know, mm. right. <laughs> that's and his uh, his sound check, his warm ups before the game.
0: And Halloween actually was released before this aired on NBC. So I'm kind of surprised the the promos don't have. Did I just miss it? Did they mention it from the director of Halloween in that promo we played <laughs> earlier? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know that they really leaned into that so much.
1: Yeah, uh, but Halloween sure. was a a slow earner moving around the country. It just yeah, made money true. everywhere. It went,
0: yeah, it may know, it may not have been a big deal yet.
1: Yeah, it was working its way around, you know, the different markets.
0: <laughs> yeah, that because yeah, I've got the air date for this one was late November of '78, so Hall- or Halloween would have been out for like less than a month, I guess, by the time this aired. Yeah, but yeah. I'll do again. We're gonna try and keep this uh, with just minor spoilers for people who haven't seen it yet, and I'm gonna do an intro, and then we'll we'll get into it.
1: Let's do it.
0: So, Someone's Watching Me is a 1978 made-for-TV movie written and directed by John Carpenter, starring Lauren Hutton, David Burney, Adrian Barbeau, and Charles Cypher, produced by Warner Brothers. It originally aired on NBC on November 29, 1978. A young woman, Lee Michaels, moves from New York City to Los Angeles for a job uh, directing live TV. She rents a high-rights apartment. Uh, befriends uh, co-director Sophie. On her first day on the job, she receives a phone call from an anonymous man and when she returns home, she finds her door open. Not too worried about it, but the phone calls sort of continue. She starts getting gifts and weird letters in the mail. She meets a philosophy professor uh, she begins kind of a romance with, but the, the phone calls and letters continue and she's feeling really harassed. And her and her friends can't get any help from the police. So they kept try and figure out sort of who is uh, spying on her and, and kind of harassing her from a distance. So that's basically the premise. AJ, you're the, the I mean, I love Carpenter. He's probably my favorite director, but you're more well-versed. Obviously you've seen <laughs> Elvis. So
1: I you, have seen Elvis. He's got a leg Thank up
0: you. on me. What are your thoughts about this uh, made for TV flick?
1: Um, I think it's a really effective suspense thriller. I think it's, I can't say that it's like groundbreaking or anything in terms of watching it after the year 2000, really. I feel like it was most likely a lot scarier and a lot uh, a lot more likely to induce feelings of like paranoia and shit, you know, which is the whole idea it's someone's watching me. Just because, you know, I think back in the late 70s, that kind of stalking with like electronic surveillance and stuff like that, that stuff you heard about like cops doing with criminals and the FBI and stuff like that, it wasn't. Something you thought of as someone being able to use against you as like a private citizen, really. And the notion of some scary guy out there, you know, who's creeping on you. I mean, it's not like Stalkers were new or anything like that. But just I feel like that was probably pretty fresh at the time and thus made the movie a lot scarier to audiences watching it as a movie of the week. You can tell Carpenter is... a born filmmaker it's just really well done he he's got a lot of interesting shots and he, he uses the camera well and the way he tells the story and his script is it's good you know i liked it i don't again i don't think the story the, the main story in and of itself is anything groundbreaking it's just it starts and then you just kind of follow it and then it's done and doesn't none of it's hugely surprising especially again like i'm saying having seen lots of movies like this in its wake but it's it's kind of got its own little quirks and stuff. They make the main character, Lynn, a little weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like that. It makes her she's she's relatable because she's weird. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she she's just kind of quirky and off. And, and you're like, what the fuck is up with this lady? You know,
0: <laughs> yeah, kind like of her as, like a, I was going to say, I think of her as kind of like a charming goofball. <laughs> she's, yeah. Yeah. She's kind of cracking jokes, saying weird stuff. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I thought she was stuff. really charming.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole tapping his leg thing, yeah. Uh, which, you know, anyone who's listening would either know or you'll go get it when you see the movie, which hopefully you will try to watch. It is very much worth watching. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. It's a made-for-TV movie from the late 70s. But, again, Carpenter does create real suspense. The characters are likable enough. You want to follow them. I do think it's not that it gets repetitive. It Near the end, I was kind of like... You know, both times I've watched it, I was kind of like, OK, we can wrap this up now just because I know <laughs> how it's going to go. Yeah. You know, because I've seen all these movies. And again, I must assume that back when it first started that, I mean, when it first aired, that wasn't a problem. People watching it then were not like, oh, my God, I've seen this. Let's go there. We're probably like, oh, my fucking God, what's going to happen? <laughs> this fucking guy. You know, I really like the guy's voice. It's it. It's unpleasant. I don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to have a call with a guy sounding like that, saying that creepy shit to you right so yeah uh, i think lauren hutton is not great but i like her she's good mm-hmm. adrian barbeau is you know she's fucking adrian barbeau she's always likable david Burney is adequate he's likable i guess i mean he's there yeah
0: he looks yeah. like kramer
2: yeah
1: <laughs> poor <laughs> bastard yeah, there's a bit of a Michael Richards uh, look there. <laughs> I didn't think about it. But now that you have, it's unfortunate because I won't ever be able to look at him again without thinking about it. So thanks for that, Chris. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, you're right. You're you're completely right. Poor bastard. Once again, um, RIP David Burney. Yeah, I liked it. And I, I assume you did, too. Why don't you regale me with your feelings on how you think <laughs> it is good, if that is, in fact, how you feel?
0: Yeah, I do think it's good. It's... Um... Like you said, it's not groundbreaking, It and it is a late 70s made-for-TV movie. It, I can see, you know, it played theatrically overseas and stuff, and it doesn't seem out of place as a theatrical movie to me. I've seen worse 70s movies, obviously, <laughs> that played in cinemas. <laughs> but yeah, it is a little, you used the word repetitive, and, and I think you said it. you don't want to say repetitive, but I'll say it. It is kind of repetitive in that, over the course of, I think it clocks in at an hour and 37 minutes. Um, yeah,
1: it's not, yeah.
0: yeah. It's and not there's that. very little credits as far as that goes. So it's pretty much a full hour, hour 36. But um, yeah, it's just a lot of her answering the phone and getting angry.
1: (laughs) But that's supposed to be scary, Chris.
0: I mean, and it is frustrating for her because, you know, she can't get any help. You know, the cops basically are like, hey, he hasn't threatened you. You know, he hasn't done, you know, such and such. Like, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. But she's obviously terrified and with good reason.
1: Yeah, I would like to point out in terms of their response to it, that it kind of sucks that in 1978 and in 2022, things have only changed so much, you know? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, uh, until he actually rapes or kills you, there's not much we can do and it's like okay and then it something awful happens and you find out that it was reported and they were like oh sorry yeah that kind of sucks
0: i do like adrian barbeau a lot it is cool that she plays a lesbian and is there's nothing stereotypical about her which i'm kind of surprised because it's the late 70s and she just plays it like just a regular woman who is gay and yeah, which I would not have expected know, <laughs> that from a movie in the '70s, a made-for-TV movie especially.
1: Exactly. You know, it's just she's just gay. She's lesbian. That's it. That's all it is. And it's only a big deal in the sense that they mention it, and then it doesn't matter at all. It's mm-hmm. like, and and the scene where she does say something about like my type or my preferences or something. Yeah. And you, they acknowledge that you know she's lesbian, and then. It goes on. And I said, I, I looked at Tiff because, you know, obviously I watched it with her and I was like, I'm sure we can't imagine how progressive that was for 1978 that they yeah. just kind of, you know, it's just it's not a big deal, you know, which, you know, is awesome to see that the movie is like, oh, yeah, they happen to be gay. Let's move <laughs> on and just see the, the human being because, you know, that's that's what it is. It's just just a person. And it's rad. I really like that. Yeah, that it just feels so like casual and then they don't ever make a big deal out of it.
0: Like like I told you before we started recording, I think I told you um, I have that scream Blu-ray and I listened to part of the commentary track, which is from a I forget the woman's name, but she has written a book essentially about made for TV movies from the I think from the early 70s up to the late 90s. And nice. She points out a lot of cool stuff. I didn't listen to the entire commentary track, but she pointed out something early that I had not really picked up on, which is. The apartment building is called Arkham Tower, which is a nod to H.P. Lovecraft, because we know Carpenter is a fan of uh, Lovecraft stuff.
1: He is, indeed. Uh,
0: and also, the building super, or whoever it is that shows her, her apartment, is Mr. Leone, which... I'm assuming she checked this and is not just making an assumption (laughs) uh, (laughs) that it's a reference to Sergio Leone, who Carpenter's a big fan of Westerns also.
1: Yeah, I just assumed that's what that was.
0: There are apparently other Lovecraft references throughout the movie that I didn't hear her reference because I haven't listened to the whole thing, but (laughs) I thought that was a, a cool feature. But yeah, the the acting is all pretty good. I w- I would say better than I would have expected for a movie of this caliber. Maybe I'm being too harsh like with my judgment of 70s TV cinema, but I just assume most of them were really bad. So, but they uh, weren't, this one is more than watchable is uh surprising and uh, welcome.
1: Yeah, there there were of course some absolute like pieces of shit to be sure. <laughs> But there were a lot of good ones, too. And not just, you know, this one or, you know, Duel is usually the one people point to because it's fucking rad. I Uh, guess it
0: makes sense that because TV was, there were three channels, you know, for most of this time. So that's where all the money was. So they had money to make these made-for-TV movies and Movies of the Week and stuff like that. So there were probably a lot of good, talented people working on most of them. So,
1: yeah. You know, and there's definitely some really good stuff, even through the early 80s, like, you know, with Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's there wasn't like it wasn't I don't know that it was some huge golden era of the TV movie. It might have been, you know, the mid to late 70s. I know there was some really good stuff happening in that decade. But, yeah, definitely we'll have to uh, figure out a little a little regimen for you to check them off your list, sir, as part of your (laughs) cinematic journey. Certain ones that I'll figure out and yeah. recommend to you.
0: <laughs> I've never seen uh, Duel, so that'll. God damn. Have to, we'll have to cover that at some point on the podcast, too. I've wanted <laughs> to see Duel for a long time. I just never have. I haven't watched it.
1: Well, you should. I, and, you know, I mean, I make a big deal and huff and puff when you mention movies and things that you haven't seen. <laughs> but we, I mean, come on. There's movies I haven't seen that I definitely should have fucking seen by now. And we all have our blind spots. I just enjoy giving you shit about it, and I'm always going to. Uh, that's that's all that is. It's it's good natured shit giving. Uh, as a well. friend, yes. As a friend. <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, that I, I, the one of the best things about this flick is it seems like Carpenter's training wheels for Halloween. There's a lot of point of view shots. There's especially that one shot early when mm-hmm. she comes home and her door's open. She calls to find out I think she calls the super because she assumes somebody has been in from the building that works there and there's that classic carpenter pans the camera over to one angle and then pans it back and you see in the background somebody running out of her apartment so it's obvious somebody's been in there and there's a lot of that type of stuff in Halloween which we just talked about at length on an episode of our other podcast which should have started dropping by this point by the time this comes out
1: but yeah I mean that's what I think of as the classic Carpenter Scared. They do not have that specific one in Halloween, though. And what I mean is the one that I'm thinking of that he uses in Escape from New York. And then again, from a different perspective in In the Mouth of Madness, where In Escape from New York, Snake has just landed on the World Trade Center. One of the towers, he's gone down just a little bit, and behind him is an open doorway. And as he's looking at his radio or something, someone runs across the open doorway. So you just see this running form for a second. And in In the Mouth of Madness, it's near the end of the movie, and you're watching Sam Neill walk down the hallway of the mental asylum after everything has gone to shit. Mm. And he gets a certain ways down, and then something runs right in front of the camera. Yeah. Um, And he turns around and it's not there. But, yeah, she's standing there. The camera pans over and the open doorway is there. And then the guy runs from one side to the other. And it's like, yes, (laughs) you know, because it's just it's the classic carpenter. It is. I don't think any again, I don't think anyone did that before he did, or at least they didn't do it the way he did it. I can't really I can think of ones after he did it Mm. where it's clearly them ripping it off. The way black Christmas the recent black Christmas remake ripped off one of the most famous jump scene jump scares in movie history.
0: the uh, Exorcist one.
1: yes, yeah, and I saw it coming too because of the way that the scene was playing out. yeah, I was like, are they gonna end it like and they did? <laughs> and I was like, okay, and I I can respect the gameplay, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, cool. if you're gonna do that shit. Do it from one of the best. Um, so I I have never particularly been angry at anybody for ripping off John Carpenter visual right. scares because, you know, he's kinda he he was kind of rewriting a specific sort of visual language with how he was communicating the scares to the audience. And he was doing it, you know, young and full of fucking piss and vinegar and like, woohoo! I'm John Carpenter, I'm ready to go. And he just was dropping masterpiece after masterpiece on us.
0: As far as I'm concerned, all the young filmmakers out there, please, please rip off John Carpenter as (laughs) possible. Keep it going. I'm all for it.
1: Study the Carpenter and do what he does. The movies will be better for it.
0: The uh, other, like the point of view shot stuff. One thing I thought was really interesting about that is we spend most of the movie with the stalker, like his point of view. and. When you get closer to the climax, we see a lot more of we see a lot more of Lee's point of view just the camera moving around as as her eye, through like looking through her eyes uh, when she's in a bad spot towards the end of the flick.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, his camera work is really strong. You know, you can just tell the dude is a born talent for telling a story on film. You know, visually telling the story in an interesting and involving way. I mean, that's why we lo- one of the reasons why we love. Uh, Old JC, the horror master.
0: <laughs> the only other thing I really had I wanted to point out was uh, Uncle Leo shows up. Classic Seinfeld side character. <laughs> Another Seinfeld reference I got to squeeze in there. Uh, he has one scene in the police station. So it's all. It's always good to see Uncle Leo pop in. But uh, that's pretty much all I got for this one. Anything else specifically you want to throw out for someone's watching me?
1: No, it's good. It's not. I mean, again, you'd have to either buy the blue, an old DVD if you can find it. Or, you know, rent it on demand through Amazon or Vudu or Apple, whatever you do, whatever it is available on. I'm not sure which one of those it is, but I think it's worth at least, you know, if it's like three or four bucks to rent it, it's for sure worth doing that. I think yeah. it's good. Yeah, I dig it.
0: Yeah, I agree, if, especially if you're a big Carpenter fan and this is one that saluted you for, you know, up to this point, it's definitely worth worth it. It's not, I can think of at least three carpenter movies that this is better than so
2: <laughs> no, for sure.
0: that's uh yeah it, it's definitely worth checking out if you're a big fan of his or uh, if you're just a fan of you know voyeur voyeuristic thriller type flicks a cool movie not too dated really other than just the fact that this type of story has sort of been told also worth noting that the inspiration for the movie was a newspaper article that carpenter apparently read or maybe somebody read it and suggested it to him and he wrote a script. So it's sort of, kind of, sort of based on a true story about a woman who was was being harassed through phone calls and and I think through mail delivery stuff. But
1: yeah, in Chicago or something, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it was Chicago. Uh, but yeah, that's I guess that's it for someone's watching me. But we're not done. We got we got a, a, quite a ways to go before we move on to our second flick. We're gonna do top. We're gonna do two top threes this uh, this month because we've got two flicks to talk about. So I had asked AJ to come up with his top. 3 John Carpenter scores. I'm going to go first. I'm probably gonna not going to have as much to say about it as, as AJ, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love the Carpenter's music. I've got some of his uh, more recent a- albums. I think it's great that he's that's kind of where his career has transitioned to um, is is doing music and concerts and stuff.
1: His new music is great.
0: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. But of course he's known for scoring a lot of his own movies and most of them are great. So my top three, and I'm, i mostly associate like the main titles when I think of, of uh, Carpenter scores, although he does a great job throughout. I'll, I'll do an honorable mention, which is Halloween 2018. He was brought in to do the score for that and did a great job. There's in particular, there's one sequence where what's the young girl's name in Halloween 2018? The dog. Oh. Or- uh. Anyway,
1: when the, <laughs>
0: when the <laughs> yeah, granddaughter is, is running through the streets and Michael's, after she's seen that Michael's killed one of her friends, she's fleeing, you know, through the suburban streets. The the, uh, the piece that plays during that sequence is my favorite from that score. Uh, really cool stuff. Uh, but my top three, I guess this is kind of in order. In the Mouth of Madness, which I don't think is one of his highly regarded scores. It's kind of him doing like a hard rock Metallica style deal. But I, th- those opening titles with the books in mm-hmm. the printing press and that those guitar licks <laughs> it really gets in my head i really like that one and of course halloween which is probably one of the three or four most famous scores of all time i would think in films jaws halloween star wars and indiana jones i guess but yeah uh that that, that one's great and then my favorite is assault on precinct 13 that opening title sequence with the uh bum, like it just drills its way into my brain every time and not as as iconic maybe as you know halloween or, or some of the other big film scores but it's one that is probably my favorite of, of his his music
1: i get it it's fucking killer all of those are <laughs> killer that's the problem and why to a degree dear listeners i'm still a little bit miffed with chris for making me do this i'm really what sorry. do
0: you got aj top three
1: can't do it can't do a top three <laughs> not not fairly just you know you knew this was gonna happen yeah, i
0: have mention in there so feel free to throw a couple yeah. extra in well i need.
1: mean I, I mean obviously i do like the in the mouth of madness one kind of like big trouble he's got ones that are like his rock scores mm-hmm. big trouble in little china is a little more rock than the stuff he had done previously and in the mouth of madness is more hard rock vampires is kind of blues rock like a southwestern Mm -hmm. vibe and ghosts of mars is back to kind of like a hard rock with almost like a not techno or industrial but more of electronic beat with the the rock stuff i mean he brought in anthrax steve Vai, buckethead to record on that with him which was pretty killer yeah so all that stuff is fun honorable mention is probably got to go to like the fog most likely because it's so cool and then here's my top three plus, you know, a number one that should go without saying. I'm just going to, I can't, I don't think it's really fair to have to make a top three and have one of them be Halloween. Because of course yeah. it's got to fucking be Halloween. It's got to be Halloween, dude. It has to be. Because it is one of the most recognizable scores ever. It's one of the most effective horror movie scores in in the whole. Not just the opening theme, the main titles, which is just the earworm of horror themes to end all earworms. Once you do that, dun, 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 people are like, "Oh my god!" Now I hear it, and then it's stuck, and they can't get away. But the stuff later on, when it's like dun 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 dun, 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 dun and then ding 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 ding, a <laughs> its just fucking. It's so intense, yeah. and it goes with the movie so perfectly. It's yeah. what you want a score to be, especially with a horror movie, where they just meet in the middle and create something that is not there without both elements yeah you know they so perfectly complement each other so yes it's got to be halloween i mean and i will quickly tell this aside and this is how geeked out your you know humble and geeky co-host is here <laughs> when i was in high school i used to take this little uh, radio i had like a, a small boom box type thing and it wasn't you know just small enough to fit in a windowsill I would open up our front door, uh, the front window, and I put the boombox in it. And I had the Halloween soundtrack on cassette. It was brand new on cassette at the time, like Varese Sarabande, if I'm saying that correct, which I'm probably not. <laughs> I probably sound like the ugliest American in the world saying that. But they, they're known for, you know, instrumental score soundtracks and stuff. They had just put it out on cassette, and I bought it the moment it came out. And I used to put that in the windowsill every year on Halloween when, I would, when we would give out candy. So when he walked up to my house, the Halloween soundtrack was playing and it made a lot of kids look at the house like what the fuck (laughs) and i took pride each and every one of those faces believe me (laughs) so yeah it's got to be halloween so i'll do my top three without halloween really quickly in the third spot assault on precinct 13 like you said that opening score iconic just Mm -hmm. amazing shit and wonderful that he did it himself and he has always said you know in his self-deprecating shit talking way it's like, yeah, you tell me I'm great. You know, the, the scores exist because I was cheap. You know, <laughs> I didn't have the money to hire a real, you know, film composer or someone to do the score for my movie. I didn't have the money, so I did it. And if it turned out great and you guys like it, that's cool. You know, whatever. But, you know, he's he's always trying to downplay it. But that being his first score for what he considers his first real movie, it's just minimalist perfection to me. I love it. In the two spot is Escape from New York. The whole score is great, but those main titles, I remember really, really responding to that as a small kid. I could not have been older than 10 years old. I was watching it, but it was, we had an old TV, like a, a small, crappy ass TV that my parents let me keep in my bedroom. So it was the first time I'd had a TV in my room. Yeah. And Escape from New York was on TV late one night when I was watching after I was supposed to be in bed. And that, the opening score, I had seen the movie before, I knew. That's why I was excited to watch it. But the score hit me in a way it hadn't. And I just remember just watching it in my bedroom the night and listening to that music and being like, this is awesome. So it's got to be Escape from New York for number two. And number one is Prince of Darkness, because I Mm. think that's just the most moody of his scores. And mileage is going to vary. It's all subjective. If anyone was like, I think Christine is his best score, I'd be like, "Okay, Yeah, I can't really argue with really any of them. They live, yeah, fuck yeah, that movie, you know, the score for that movie is killer. But Prince of Darkness, there's something about it, the whole opening having that long, it's a really long cue to start the movie. That whole, the opening credits of that movie is like eight, nine minutes long, and at least half of that has his score. And it's just such a way to to set that, the, the scene for that movie and the weird, oh, Champs and shit. It's there's it's a, it's a whole vibe, dude, and it's doomy and fucking you know it, it feels threatening and eerie and it's just so great. I want to swim around <laughs> in it. I I love it. It and it's got what you. What you think of in a john carpenter score it's got that sonic pulse you know i've heard someone say that once years and years ago about the john carpenter scores and i have not been ashamed to steal it and use it to describe <laughs> it for myself but, because it's the best way i've ever heard it described yeah. is his scores have a sonic pulse to them and it's 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 as much a signature style an authorial signature or whatever you want to call it as any visual gag that he likes to do the john carpenter jump scare that we were talking about his sound is as much a part of the john carpenter experience as anything which is why i miffed at you christopher for making me (laughs) pick my favorites among all of them sorry had to be done Uh, you, you know, it's it's a fair question. I just kind of hate you for it. No, I don't. You, you know I love you, Chris. So, yeah, they're all great. Those are my favorites. I managed to somehow mention like nine of them. So I did good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, they're all pretty much awesome. So, yeah. Whittling it down to three is, is not an easy task.
1: It's a fool's errand, Chris.
0: <laughs> but, yeah, that I guess that's it for someone's watching me and, and Carpenter. We're actually going to transition from Carpenter to King by way of the one project that they that kind of shares DNA from both of them which is of course John Carpenter's Christine, uh, based, Christine. On, <laughs> based on a Stephen King book. I assume you've read Christine, I've not read it.
1: Yeah, I read it before I saw the movie.
0: I saw Christine for the first time probably 10 years ago, maybe a little less. I do remember it being on TV when I was a really little kid and my brothers like telling me yeah, that guy's mad because somebody shit on the hood of his, or on the dashboard of his car. <laughs> uh, that always stuck with me when I was a little kid.
1: Yeah. But of course, I, I had no... I said, I can imagine <laughs> that it stuck but with I you.
0: No, I had no real memories of the actual movie uh, when I actually finally picked up a Blu-ray of it about a decade ago or so and, and watched it. And I've watched it several times since and It's a really cool flick. Tell me... with I mean, I'm going to read the book eventually. I've got a copy of it, but... um. How different is the book from from the actual movie?
1: Um, It's pretty different. I mean, it's just a little deeper. You get more character stuff and like Dennis and Lee end up getting together. And I think she's broken up with Arnie. Um, I mean, in the book, I know she has, she breaks up with Arnie and her and Dennis are trying to save him and figure out what the fuck is going on with Christine. And as they're investigating their little Scooby-Doo ways, they get together. And that's in the deleted scenes on the Columbia Blu-ray of uh, Christine anyway. I don't remember those being on the on the DVD. I used to, have I had at least two copies of it on DVD and I don't remember those being there, but that's in the book. I wish they kept it in the movie. And the the book is different in that, um, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything for you, really. When When Arnie buys the car, he buys it from Roland LeBay, not his brother George. Okay. In the movie, George has already died. He's killed himself in the car. In the movie, he sells it to Arnie, and Arnie takes it, and then the guy dies. And it's very clear that the car is super haunted, not just by that guy's wife and kid who died in the car. Mm-hmm. but it's mainly haunted by the spirit of that guy. It's him specifically. There is no, and in the movie, they, they make it clear that from the get on the, you know, assembly line in Detroit back in 1957, yeah, the car was bad, born bad, bad to the bone, as George <laughs> Thorgood sang. That's
0: um, interesting because like, yeah, the movie, there's no indication really what is wrong with the car other than the that car it's is just evil. Yeah, it's alive and it's bad.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, in the book, it's it's the dead guy. Gotcha. It's the spirit of Roland. Uh, his unending fury is a repeated line in the novel. Mm. And it's great. It's a great book. And the movie, obviously, I love it. Um, that's one I didn't see until I was like eighth grade or something. I had been reading Stephen King since I was probably 10. And I had read the book by that time. And I think I'd seen bits and pieces of it on cable. But I know I hadn't seen the whole movie. And my mom, at some point, after I started reading Stephen King, she would let me do that stuff. But she wanted to talk about it and make sure I understood, like, you know, that it's fiction and I didn't need to go start killing people or whatever (laughs) crazy shit I was reading. She'd let me do all the horror stuff, watch all the horror movies. But she wanted to talk about it. And, you know, like a good parent, make sure your kid understands and all that stuff. Right. And she she said, what Stephen King book have you read so far that is the least scary or that you think I would like the most. And I was like, Eyes of the Dragon, because that's more fantasy. Mm. She reads it and she goes, I really love that. Pick one of the horror novels. And so I gave her Christine and she read that and loved that too. When I'm like in eighth grade, she goes, have you seen the movie? I said, no. She goes, let's rent it. And everyone out, like my stepdad and my sister were gone. It was just me and her that night, for whatever reason, we went and rented it and watched it. That's the first time I ever saw it. And it was awesome. That was a great experience because we both really liked it.
0: Awesome. So, yeah, I love Christine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot, too. It's it's probably not in, like, my top five or six Carpenter movies, but no. that's no shame because I love almost all of his movies. Even the ones people yeah. hate, like Vampires and Ghosts of Mars, I still kind of like those as well. There's only a couple I'm not a fan of.
1: Probably in my top ten. I know it's not in my top five, but that, but like you said, it's still a four out of five star movie for me. Yeah. You know, I love it.
0: Yeah, there's some. I mean, you know, the image of the car on fire with the headlights <laughs> going down the highway. Like it's so. I mean, that's iconic, really. Yeah,
1: and uh, his score for the movie is great. Yeah, I do want you seen the that.
0: music video from when he I did have. when he redid the score a few years ago? Yeah, that's really yeah, cool.
1: Yeah, for the for the Carpenter anthology, and he directed <laughs> the video, and they brought back a '57 Fury, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was fun to watch.
0: So yeah, Christine's very cool. If you haven't seen it, definitely check that out. So, yeah, we're going to transition to a little Stephen King with Salem's Lot. So we're going to talk Salem's Lot now. Stephen King, uh, which I didn't realize, but this is his second novel. Is that right? It is indeed. After Carrie. So kind of earlier in his canon than I... It was aware of yeah in 1979 i believe toby hooper directed this tv miniseries so it was two nights about three hours running time for for this one if you watch it all in one chunk and i had never seen this before like i told you off air you know I, I had seen the rob lowe version on tnt in the early like aughts probably like 2003 or 4 something like that
1: gotta love it except no way you don't
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i don't think it's well very well regarded i kind of liked it when i watched i'd never read the book or seen you know this mini series so i didn't have anything to compare it to and at the time it was pretty good and i never watched it again i never really had any desire
1: (laughs) i Uh, saw it when it aired too and i haven't seen it since either i don't think it's particularly easy to watch you know what i mean um But uh, again, as we discussed off air, there were things I really liked about it and there were things I really hated about it. Some of the casting I really enjoyed, some of it I didn't. It's, It's truly a hit or miss affair, whereas today's I think is just pretty much all hit to me mm-hmm. the original 79 one that we're about to uh get down with um i'm sorry i'm excited to talk about it man i love this one uh, so you said you didn't read you 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 hadn't read the book back then or have you read it by now or
0: no i've still never read the book I, my um, okay.
1: blasphemer okay
0: <laughs> my history with king uh, as a novelist is not that extensive either i think i've read maybe four of his books five maybe and then i have uh listened to a a handful on audiobook as well but i don't i haven't come close to you know uh, hitting all of the of the king classics and most of the ones i've read are more recent ones like Eleven Twenty Two, Sixty Three, or what's the name of the the hard case oh joyland joyland yeah i read that one but yeah most of the king's my, my biggest king's biggest impact on me has been through the the film adaptations of his stuff
1: which I get. It's just you know, uh, being that asshole, and I will be that asshole, <laughs> shaming you a little bit. Uh, you know, I won't go into it. I'll just say, given your close connection with bookstores and whatnot, <laughs> I'm, 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 i I want to kind of throw a digital shoe at your head that you only read a few of his books, man. You need to. Yeah. I, I will work up a list that, that I think you should look into. This this whole <laughs> I mean, podcast I've, is really just going to lead to me giving you homework in, in basically every pop culture category. So let's just accept this now.
0: But no, I mean, I've, I mean a I've lot probably of probably got is, 10 or 12 King books that I own that I haven't read yet, just that I've collected over the last couple of years. When I when I had the bookstore, you know, for all people who don't know, I, I ran a bookstore for about four or four and a half years and So jealous. occasionally somebody would bring in like a a collection of King books, you know, and they would instantly be gone. Like They would sell within a few days every time. So I couldn't keep them in the store. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he is, you know, I mean, I've seen people say that maybe he doesn't still carry that designation of the number one author in the world. But for a while, it was kind of hard to argue against him being. the 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 great ape of you know writing genre or otherwise you know his i think his numbers were just ridiculous but his influence is just so huge in horror and you know a lot of other genres too it's not all he does but it's what we all basically know him for
2: so
0: my my favorite king movie is probably stand by me which is you know, has a little bit of horror elements, I guess, considering the dead yeah. body and stuff, but very little. Yeah. It's mostly just a standard coming of age story.
1: Yeah. And it's a great one. I And apparently very close to his own heart and childhood. It, you know, it's very personal to him. Apparently when he first was shown the movie by Rob Reiner or whatever he had, to, when it was over, he goes, I need a few minutes. And, you know, look looked like he was kind of, being emotional and he went off and you know had his little reaction and dealt with it and then came back and was like that's my favorite movie of anything i ever wrote that's that's my favorite movie that came out of it so thank you and that's pretty awesome and i think he liked this one too i think he had some nitpicks but i know he didn't hate it like he did the shining
0: um shawshank may be the most like the most beloved you know Movie uh, based on one of his works, too. So, and that's not horror at all. So,
2: no, he's
1: multifaceted. And, yeah. <laughs> and taking it what it's worth, that was the number one rated movie on IMDb for a number of years. Yeah. Which, again, you know, that's like a Rotten Tomato score. It means only so much, but it still does signify
2: something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and it probably yeah. meant more, you know, in the early days of, of the internet and in the last, you know, the first 20 years or so of the internet more than it does now, where you have people just. Doing the review bomb bullshit.
1: Sure. <laughs> like sure. And I know it also had a lot to do with the fact that TNT played it like at least 30 hours a week. Sure. You know, I think that was the deal. But yeah, no, he's he is very multifaceted uh, that we know now at this time in the late 70s, early 80s. He was just, you know, literally, I think the name for him in print was the horror meister. Mm. Stephen King, America's horror meister, and and he he like mentioned that in in some interview that he was like you know okay fine, <laughs> I mean I'll own it. But he obviously branched out and did a lot of other things since then. But back in 1979, when Salem's Lot came out, do you what do you how do you feel this might have played on TV in '79? Uh, I mean, do you think it kind of transcends its origins a little bit because I know it did th- it did play theatrically. It did. Uh, they they edited it down and it played overseas in Europe, at least. And I wonder it. how
0: long the uh, the theatrical cut was, because, I mean, it's three hours. Like if you watch it on Shudder, which is where I watched it.
1: Yeah, because the two episodes together are just over three hours. Yeah. I think the shit, I think the theatrical cut is maybe only over two hours or some shit. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm not too surprised because it's. You know, we talked a little bit about on Someone's Watching Me, you know, it is, It is. you know, these are both made-for-TV films from the late 70s, but they're higher quality than what you would expect to see on, on like, a TV show from the late 70s. Yeah. The, I mean, it, apparently— It seemed like they definitely put more money into these TV movies than they were putting onto the—to just standard television stuff.
1: Sure. I mean, this one it had— seemed
0: closer to a theatrical experience than, like, you would get maybe— In the 80s and 90s from a TV movie compared to a theatrical movie.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, watching this uh, with uh, my wife, we were talking about it, that it feels like it looks a little better or just has more of a theatrical feel than some actual theatrical movies of the time Mm -hmm. of the late 70s. And the the budget was four million dollars, which is, you know, in in late 70s money is not bad at all for a TV gig. Um,
0: And Toby Hooper is, you know, behind the camera, and he knew what he
1: was doing. Yes, he did. He, it's just really effective. I think he, he, there, there is obviously the limitations that are made for TV. You know, situation is gonna, you know hold against you and you know you're going to be you're going to be starting from behind in that sense but with a real filmmaker a real horror filmmaker like toby hooper a guy who knows how to tell a story with a camera he's going to scare you and it's going to work and he's going to get past those limitations and i think he did i i think even now it's still really effective and some of it's just fucking creepy if not outright still scary you know, there's some spooky shit, bro.
0: Yeah, I, I found uh, <laughs> quite a few uh, moments to be... Like, obviously, the big moment people think of, and I think it's maybe because it's been parodied a lot. I know <laughs> I, I, most notably for me is Bart Simpson <laughs> doing yes, it on of 4, but the moment when the little kid is uh, floating outside the window and wanting to come inside is... Uh, I mean, that's... I'd never seen this movie, and I was I mean, this is fucking creepy.
1: <laughs> um, I am, you know, a proud... Member of the Generation X, as we call ourselves, but i it, it, It's well documented that the the floating little vampire fuckers, greatly disturbed, traumatized, and just scarred for life. Um, a large number of my generation, uh, well documented and much discussed. It fucked us up. To be quite blunt about it, and it's still creepy now. And you can tell it's just some little fucker on a gimbal or whatever, you know. But it just works. It doesn't need to be any less simplistic than it is. It can be simple and super effective. Just a little fog machine, a kid in some makeup, just floating around in a circle at the window, scratching, tapping. And it just it just works. I also really like their uh, their contact lenses that somehow did that weird reflective thing. And it's not some like drawn over the frame bullshit optical effects that you would normally get in the 70s. Even in a theatrical thing, you know, it looks like some cartoon thing that they just had to literally paint onto the, you know, onto the film.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you see Jeffrey Lewis
2: mm-hmm, with that's the, the one.
0: eyes in the dark like that, you could almost see that could have been a post effect. But it works really well. The though. woman in the morgue, like clearly, she has some. Kind of contact or something in there.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was fucked up. That was creepy. Yeah. Marjorie Glick coming back against the fucking wishes of God and all that is holy.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm looking through this cast here uh, and I did not notice him in the movie Elisha Cook Jr. as uh-huh. Gordon Phillips. So which character is.
2: Uh, he
1: was a Weasel. Uh, the older guy named Weasel. Okay. The one who had the crush on the lady who ran the boarding house.
0: Okay. Yeah, I didn't recognize him. You know, I'm sure he was much older than I'm. I only know him from like the Bogart movies he was in. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, curious when I saw that.
1: Uh, yeah, they had been the lady who played Ava. Uh, they had been in some classic movie together, and I'm not enough of a film freak to be able to name it offhand. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, I know it. I know that's the deal. I just can't remember the name of it.
0: Um, it was nice to see them. They played those parts well.
1: Uh, I thought it was it was cast overall very well.
0: That's the first thing that kind of jumped out to me when I was watching it. I was like, within the first few minutes, Fred Willard's in this motherfucker. I had yeah. no idea. That's yeah. cool. And then in you know,
1: I, I was just going to say, in kind of a soap opera-y line, what did you think about the way it set up all these characters and stuff, like the Fred Willard character, in kind of they all they've all got their own shit going on. Yeah. And it's yeah, kind of yeah. intertwining like a soap opera. I know that he had Peyton Place in mind when he wrote the novel. He was like, Peyton Place, but with vampires. So I was like, <laughs> okay, that's an interesting, that's interesting. That's like Johnny Depp saying he had Angela Lansbury in mind when he did Sleepy Hollow. But I was wondering for you, since you hadn't seen it, how you felt about, especially a large part of that first, what would be the first episode?
0: Yeah, well, the, not a whole lot of like, none of, most of the scary, creepy stuff really starts getting hammered home in the second half. Yeah. Yeah, I I like the kind of slow buildup and like showing you all the different characters and all their personal shit they've got going on, like the affair and the guy, the guy who's having an affair. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, That's the funny thing. Like you said, Fred Willard's in this motherfucker. And it's like, yeah. And he's (laughs) fucking banging his secretary and like the husband knows about it. And it's this whole thing, you know, it is kind of very soap opera. but you know, it's all done very well and the cast is really good. Like I kind of remember that lady like uh, just. By uh, her face, from like stuff in seventies and eighties TV the, or uh,
0: the whatever. Girl, the, the woman who was having yeah. The affair.
1: yeah, yeah. I, she's I know her from some. I mean, I you know recognize her, but couldn't tell you her name. But she's good in this. You know, everyone's good in it.
0: Julie Cobb is her name, and I took note ah. of her because you know we met, I mentioned this on the Bud the Chud episode we did when oh, the mom from Charles in Charge was was in Bud the Chud.
1: Uh-huh.
0: That was the second mom. Julie Cobb was the first mom. <laughs> so, on Charles and Charge? Yeah, she was in the first season Holy of Charles and Charge. She was the mother. shit. And looking a lot better in Salem's Lot than she did on Charles and Charge. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, much like the, the second mom in Bud the Chud. But, um, yeah, that's what I knew her from, like, immediately because... That's crazy. I was, like, a huge fan of that show when I was a kid. It was in syndication. So yeah, there were two different families, and so I uh, I recognize her from that. I don't see a whole lot else that she's in that I would know her from. Looking at her filmography here, it's mostly just TV stuff from the like 70s and 80s, going back to Star Trek in '68. So yeah, just a long career all the way up to 2020. It looks like, so she's still around and kicking with it.
1: That is awesome. You always like to see people just kind (laughs) of. Continuing on. But yeah, and what did you think about David Soul as uh, our erstwhile hero? We, I mean, it's it's a pretty simple setup. Most people who have seen this should know you can do the Wikipedia thing. But I mean, it's about a dude named uh, Ben Mears, a guy who comes back home to Salem's Lot. He's become kind of uh, an author of some note he's put out you know he's written a couple of novels and people recognize him he's known i don't think he's some like phenomenon but he's he's definitely you know an up-and-comer very successful goes back home he's got some history with the haunted house on the hill the marston house um and there seems to be strange things afoot there now you know oddly coincidentally now that ben has returned and like we've been talking about citizens of the town all kind of have their own little lives going on, little soap opera, little melodrama, you know, they're all batting around each other. And then the darkness comes to town and it begins to spread in the night, you know, and all that shit. It's, you know, we all know what this is. This is vampires, man. Vampires come, you know, and Ben's got a
0: familiarity of like the story progression, but it's mostly because I'm sure it's mostly because I've seen it ripped off in a lot of different ways.
1: This, was a real, not I don't want to say continuation, but he was obviously very influenced. And he has, Stephen King has said this on many occasions, that he loved reading the old classics and seeing the old Hammer movies and, you know, monsters on the moors and vampires and creepy old castles in, you know, Romania, Transylvania, Europe, all that shit in the dark, stormy night castle, right? Well, Richard Matheson wrote, I Am Legend, and that's just set in suburban America, you know, in tract houses and subdivisions. And it Stephen King has said it showed him that horror could be next door. It didn't have to be in some creepy old castle. And so he was kind of continuing down on the path that Matheson did with vampires in suburbia with I Am Legend. And he just kind of, again, his whole patent place, but with vampires. So it's just small town Soap Opera America, all our own little <laughs> problems and foibles, and people are fucking each other over and fucking who they shouldn't be fucking, and it's just <laughs> all this thing. But then vampires come in. You know, it's kind of like a he did the same thing with Needful Things. You know what I mean? It just never wasn't
0: read that. Uh, is that another supernatural?
1: It, it the devil comes to town. Oh, and starts selling people the things they want, the things they need. And of course, we all end up turning on each other and killing each other because he doesn't he he just kind of he just kind of sets everything up and lets us make our own choices. And as usual, we do it to ourselves. That's really what Needful Things is about. But it's also got the same small town setting where everybody knows each other. And, you know, and Bonnie Bedelia is in the movie version of that, too, which is pretty funny. I was yeah, going to ask
0: surprised you to see her I, so surprised that I didn't recognize her for the first few scenes she was in, I don't think. And then I was like, holy shit, that's super young. Mrs. is McLean.
1: Yes, yes, Holly, Holly Gennaro, thank you very much.
0: Oh, my, my bad. Um,
1: <laughs> but no, she, yes, she's very young and she's good in this too. Very likable. Speaking about the Maligned Remake miniseries, Samantha Mathis played Susan in that version and oh is very God. good too. But when is Samantha Mathis not good? We all know <laughs> this is a fact. I, I wanted to ask you, what did you think about David Soul uh, as Ben Mears?
0: He was good. I don't know that I've ever seen him in anything. I, I don't recognize him. I he is keep, Hutch. On- yeah i was gonna say Charsky and hutch i knew so I saw he was that, his, the, that in his filmography i didn't know if he was one of the two one
1: of the, of the characters. titular characters yes indeed yeah and so he was like you know the the tough cop guy in the 70s cop show and i thought he did a pretty good job of this he wasn't like you know super bookish or anything but i felt he played it very much as just a regular guy Uh huh. you know what i mean he's not some fucking superhero or man of action or anything he's pretty terrified through a lot of it right and pretty much what the fuck is go- i don't understand what's going on you know like it, he's genuinely confused and scared and that's very much what he should be playing that's that's been mirror so it, it,
2: yeah, it's
0: it, not
1: I'm, i was just gonna say it's not some super cop character like yeah you know, and that's uh, is team. that what
0: he's norm was more known as uh besides Tarski? was he more of like the Square jawed hero type in most stuff.
1: kind of Kinda. he was the square jawed cop. He was a villain in one of the uh, in the first Dirty Harry sequel, Magnum Force. Hmm. Very good in that. But yeah, kind of a kind of a, a scary badass. I don't think he had been in. Then again, you know what? I'm coming to this from years away. I really I had <laughs> seen him on Starsky and Hutch as a kid and I saw him in this. And then when I got a little bit older, I saw him in Magnum Force and I could not tell you one fucking thing he was in besides any of that. I'm <laughs> sure he's been in more and I'm sure he was in more after this, just couldn't couldn't name a thing. But I would assume most of it was a tougher guy as opposed to the more normal, you know, everyday John Q public mm-hmm. rando. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, Magnum Force was several years before this, and then Starsky and Hutch was before this as well, so it yeah, seems I, like he was probably playing against type a little bit, at least.
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure that at the time this this was very against type and, and a change of pace for him.
0: And probably uh, not what people were expecting from him going in, knowing he was like the lead of this uh, uh, horror flick they probably didn't expect him to be. Probably thought he would be a little more tough
1: guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you heard, you know, Hutch from TV is in this movie, you know, and it's about vampires, you think he's just going to kick the shit out of vampires all the whole time. <laughs> That's what you would assume, I'm sure. And so it probably surprised a lot of people. You're right. But I think he's really good in it. I think he's good. I think the kid is good because the kid comes off as a little weird mark.
0: Yeah. The, uh, uh, the horror fanatic the,
1: kid. The monster kid. Yeah. The monster kid. who is great. And it's one of the first representations of that that i can remember the kid who collected the models and painted all the shit and knew about the movies and the makeup and you know a horror geek monster kid and and he played it as like a bleep weird you know maybe a little um socially maladjusted <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i mean the monster kid didn't probably even exist until maybe 10 years before this 10 15 years before this came out really yeah
1: like in real life yeah you know the, but the kids. I, who, I don't
0: think there were a lot of big monster magazines i think those kind of came into fashion in like the 50s and 60s right
1: yeah mark definitely read Fam- famous monsters of filmland you know that magazine that when that came out that started the whole monster kid thing and Mark was the first wave man in the Vanguard, <laughs> you know? And, that, and I think that's super cool. And I like the way the kid played him because he's, he is a little weird, but not like where you feel like they're portraying him as a freak or anything like that. That's not what I mean. Like relatably weird to us, other monster kids and horror geeks. So as far as the rest of the cast goes, like James Mason, what did you think of him as Straker, which is the vampire's familiar? His, uh, in the books and in the other Salem's lot movie, where he's played by Rutger Hauer, that version of Barlow speaks. But in this one, they were like, we want to make him a monster like the old Nosferatu kind of thing. Um, And that's cool. It works really well, I think.
0: Uh, Yeah, I like that fact that he's just sort of like an inhuman monster, basically. (laughs) And I had seen, you know, he doesn't look too bad. I can see some people thinking he looks a little cheesy, you know, because it's, you know, a Nosferatu type on a TV budget in the 70s. But I don't think he looks too bad, really.
1: I always thought he looked pretty pretty super cool. I mean, I think in a way, I mean, it's not as iconic as Nosferatu, the actual Max Shrek, you know. But it's a pretty iconic vampire look, I think. I, I It really worked for me. But what did you think about James Mason with that <laughs> voice? You know? uh,
0: yeah, he was very cool. I, I'm looking at his...
1: He'd been in fucking everything,
0: bro. Yeah, his phonography. I, I knew that name, but I don't think I knew that he was... That the guy playing this character was a...
1: Hugely celebrated, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hugely celebrated uh, British. But now legend. that I'm
0: looking at his filmography, yeah, he was in *Heavenly Way*, *Lolita*, *North by Northwest*. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was really good and very creepy. Especially the scene, the one that really stood out to me was the scene in the kitchen when he's talking to the priest,
2: uh, <laughs>
0: basically saying, you know, he wants to to test your faith. Basically, I forget how he he phrased it, but that was that was my favorite interaction with with straker and anybody it was him and the priest
1: doesn't he call him like shaman you know all your strength shaman or something like that like he you know it's it's really it's kind of weirdly intense Um, and a lot of that is just his his performance the way he's delivering the lines i think he's i agree with you he's creepy i like that it's kind of almost an understated creepy
0: yeah he's not hamming (laughs) it up or anything
1: no and and the way donald sutherland did it as i remember is much more obvious cartoon evil played
0: that character in the low version
1: yeah okay yeah and yeah and he was great you know because he's donald sutherland it's like be creepy dude and it's like cool and it's (laughs) you know he's got you and it's fun to watch but to me it's it's almost like and this may seem like a weird comparison uh, or analogy but it works for me james mason in this one is brian cox in manhunter and donald sutherland in the remake Uh, is anthony hopkins in silence of the lambs you know more mustache twirling more overtly fun but this one is almost underplayed but it's still like weird and like you don't like the dude like i don't like you bro like i I don't (laughs) dig you or your style like you're not like overtly like threatening me or like you know like donald sutherland it seems like he wants you to come in so he can eat you from his oven you know like a, a very a witch in hansel and gretel kind of thing he just that's how he plays it and it's fine it's just you wonder how they ever fooled anybody. Cause you know, you would think as soon as that guy showed up, he'd be like, yeah, we're not going to do business with you, bro. It seems like you're going to like be a cannibal and eat us all or something. We don't, something's off about you. Whereas James Mason, it feels like you could kind of like, he's just kind of a, maybe a little slightly odd duck British guy, you know, but the more time you spend around him, the more you, you don't, you don't like his vibe. <laughs> you know? So yeah, I really, really like James Mason in the movie. I think, you know, again, it's just more proof that I think Toby Hooper, had more going on than a lot of people want to give him credit for. Yeah. You know, they just want to assume he showed up and like, let's do some scary shit. But there's, there's lots of good performances in Toby Hooper movies. And even if that's just him being smart enough to, to hire the right people and then step back and go do what you do and trusting them to, you know, do a James Mason thing and that you know that's better than a lot of directors are smart enough to do <laughs> you know what yeah, i'm saying sure. so i mean what what do you think about his directing this is what we've obviously talked about it's a tv movie or tv miniseries from 79 but he did have 4 million bucks and like the stuff in the marston house at the end i i i didn't want to be in there
0: right yeah yeah the the creepiest part of the entire movie to me was I think directly after they stake the uh, the master and the kid is kind of laying on the ground and you see behind him the the other vampires kind of rousing and crawling towards him.
1: <laughs> that's uh, fucked up,
0: dude. Yeah, that, that's the part <laughs> that really was like, oh, damn. I do and wonder, it's... like, if Hooper was kind of slumming it. I don't know. Because <laughs> I just don't know what the dynamics in the late 70s were like. If you're a guy who's been making theatrical releases... And then you're going to do a TV miniseries like I don't know if that was looked at as a step down or because like now, obviously, TV is as prestigious as most film work. But at the, at the time, I don't think that was probably the case. Yeah, I, you a, know, he, I think he does a good job with this one.
1: Yeah, I think he did something very similar to what we talked about earlier with John Carpenter and Someone's Watching Me, which is that. Let me see if I get this uh, timeline correct, because I know you would know. (laughs) Carpenter does Someone's Watching Me. Then he goes right into Halloween. Then he goes right into Elvis, right?
0: I think that sounds right. I know that Elvis and Someone's Watching Me, I think they both come out in the same year. So I'm pretty sure he did those all three of those pretty much in a very short
1: time. In one run, yeah. Well, the only difference between... Well, Toby did two theatricals and then Salem's Lot. In 74, he's got obviously one of the greatest horror movies ever made. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A lot of people's number one. I get it. It's fucking it's monumental. You can't fuck with it. Then in seventy six he does Eaten Alive, which is still kind of culty even to this day. You know, I think a lot of people would go, Yeah, I like Toby Hooper movies. If you go, have you seen Eaten Alive? I don't know how many have. You know what I mean? Really, the I'm super fans that don't <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? And a lot of hardcore horror fans have seen it. You know, not to You know, take away from anyone who's like, I fucking saw Eatin' Alive back when I was seven years old, back in 1980. A lot of people have seen it, but it tends to be the hardcore, you know, super horror fans or super *Toby* fans. So he makes those
2: and then he goes to
1: Salem's Lot, is all I was saying. I think he probably just, four million bucks may have been more than he had to make a movie, period.
0: Yeah, I'm probably not being fair because, you know, Texas Chainsaw was essentially like an indie movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's probably not a big step down at all for him to, to be doing a big network adaptation of a of a Stephen King book.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I think uh, *Eaten Alive* was indie too. I don't think that was released by a studio. And once he does *Salem's Lot*, he gets the gig doing *The Fun House* for Universal. You know, th- that th- the *Salem's Lot* gets him a studio gig. So he does that for Universal, and that's what gets him that, and probably *Salem's Lot* too. But I know Spielberg saw. The Funhouse, and was like, "Yep, this is the guy I want doing Poltergeist." You know, he obviously knew about Texas Chainsaw and stuff, but The Funhouse, I think, let people know he could do something more polished. You know, a yeah. studio thing that looks really good, which The Funhouse does. It's a beautiful movie. But anyway, sorry, we're we're getting lost in the weeds here. I'm getting excited <laughs> talking about Toby Hooper because that's my shit. I, I'm know, not. I, I
0: wanted to ask you how close to the novel the, this adaptation is. I'm mm-hmm. not sure there's. I mean, I don't know if. King was as long-handed <laughs> in his earlier work as he has been, you know, in the last 25 30 years, but Okay, first even shut your mouth. Run time, I'm curious of how much stuff had to get cut out.
1: We'll get to that, but I'm going to repeat, cuz so chief said, shut your whore mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry.
0: I'm not, um, I'm not complaining about
1: No, that. I mean, it's, it's it's been something I've been hearing since I was 10. You know, yeah. so it a long time now. Uh, you know, <laughs> the dude just vomits all over his keyboard, man. He needs a good editor. No one has the <laughs> balls to tell him to cut this shit down. And he needs to learn how to end it, too. His endings suck ass. <laughs> Believe me, dude, I've heard it all. Salem's Lot. The book is just under 500 pages. So it's not, you know, the monster that he would end up writing for a good long time. 600, 700, 800 page monsters. I don't care. I write 2,000 page novels, bro. I'll read every <laughs> page. I love it. This is Fairly close to the book, especially in ways that the most effective of ways for what they're they're working with. They had to, to compress it. They had to cut it down. It's not necessarily inspired. It's more workmanlike in terms of sometimes you got to you got to bring the characters a little closer. You have to mix and match characters. You've got to compile and composite. In the book, the doctor is not Susan's dad. He's just the town doctor. But they're you know, collapsing things in and and compressing and making things easier. Um obviously, some of the subplots are a little bit more adult, you know uh, things are more graphic. but for the most part, you know the guy who wrote the the script of this is some he's some old pro named Paul monash who had who had done you know a lot of TV. I think he is the guy who did Peyton Place the uh, hmm. the old soap opera. You know, a, a well-known producer. I know he produced uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, so, you know, champion move right there. <laughs> but yeah, he did He did very workmanlike. You know, it's kind of like the guy, uh, Lawrence D. Cohen, who did the It miniseries and the De Palma Carey movie. It's, it's not... You don't read it and go, oh, wow, like he really... Did his own thing or took it to the next level, like someone like William Goldman did with like Misery, you know, but.
0: Or La Confidential, maybe.
1: Exactly, exactly. But you, you see it and you go, I see what you're doing and you're doing a good job. And it feels like the book, which is the most important thing. It doesn't it doesn't fuck over any of the characters. All the characters feel like they felt in the book, even if, again, some of them are, you know, not as detailed or get as much as they got like the whole weasel eva thing is a whole subplot in the book and it's this whole heartbreaking story you don't really get that in the mini series but you I mean it is still three hours long uh, which they get enough to do a little bit of everything but you still can't be no six eight hours if they'd have the, the running time of the 90s stand one which went over four nights and is like six six and a half hours all told yeah they probably could have done that for Salem's Lot, I don't know if they'd wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that you needed all those details, but anyway, again, I don't mean to get too far into the weeds. I think it's a, I think it's a, a faithful adaptation and a good job, especially considering it's a made-for-TV miniseries in the late '70s. I think it's better at capturing the tone than anything, but probably Stephen King's The Stand from '94 up, up through The Stand from the late '70s through The Stand. Salem's Lot is probably the one that captures the King voice and is the best adaptation, more so than The Tommyknockers, which I think is also written by Lawrence D. Cohen, I think. But uh, that and then, of course, the Tommy Lee Wallace It Miniseries, which a lot of us have a a soft spot for, mainly because of all the stuff with the kids and Tim Curry. Yeah. But yeah, that.
0: And Harry Anderson.
1: Harry Anderson, John Ritter, (laughs) fucking Annette O'Toole, Tim Reed. Okay, John, boy, he's fine. Um (laughs) I really love that one in a lot of ways, but how do you fuck up the casting of Bill Denbro? You know, that's big Bill. You have to do that (laughs) one right. And Richard Thomas does not embarrass himself. He's not horrible in the worst, but man, he is not inspired casting (laughs) at all. You know, fuck, I would have rather seen John Ritter play that part. John Ritter is a better dramatic actor than people give credit for. And again, off into the weeds we go. Say about the king
0: them.
1: anyway. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it, fuck, bro. You get me talking about King. I can't <laughs> help myself. But yeah, I I dig it. Where do you think this rates in terms of let's just say the King adaptations of the 70s and 80s? There was a lot in that period. That's when the the first gold rush of Stephen King adaptations happened, you know. Christine yeah. and Cujo and Dead Zone and Pet Cemetery and all that shit. Where, yeah. where, do you think this is the higher level, the mid-level, lower level?
0: I would probably put it kind of in the middle. It's hard for me to really say because, like, there are some that I've only seen once. Like, I've only seen Carrie, Cujo, I think, once. Uh, I've seen Christine several times. I would put it up pretty high up. Pet Cemetery, I think I've only seen once. And this I've only seen, you know, the once. And I think I would probably put it ahead of everything except for maybe Christine and Carrie. Okay. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Pet and or Cujo. I, I mean, I like them both, but yeah, I think I might actually prefer this to those. I would Have like you to seen? see the two-hour cut of this. I think that would be kind of interesting. I'd like to see how what they left out and to condense it down. But
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously you. You would hope it would be more streamlined. That would be the, the idea. So, I mean, pacing-wise, that that would probably work pretty good. But I, yeah, I wonder what of what substance it had to lose to to get that quicker pace. Have you seen the Dead Zone?
0: No, I've never seen that. The, that's um,
1: Christopher Walken, yeah, David walk- Cronenberg uh, one.
0: I know it best is the SNL sketch that he parodied the Dead Zone, <laughs> and of course the TV show, which I also never watched. But uh, but yeah, I, I would like to see the Dead Zone. It's I've caught it on a couple of streaming services uh, from time to time and put it on my list, and then never gotten around to watching it. But
1: well, I'm gonna figure out a way to make you watch it.
0: <laughs> the thing, one of the things is I already know how it ends too. But I'll still would like to watch it. But but you no.
1: knew you, you knew the fucking Titanic sunk, and I bet you watched that movie.
0: <laughs> true, that's
1: true. All right then. All right. That's your word. You just basically <laughs> agreed. This is binding by law. Podcast I've law. I've
0: been Dead Zone for quite a while. I just one I haven't gotten around to. The Dark Half is another one that I kind of want to watch. But
1: Oh, fuck. That one's great. That one is not on a lot of people's list of favorites, but it is mine. I mean... It's uh, it's kind of George Romero doing a slasher movie in a way like he because he never really did a slasher movie. You know, some people might point to Bruiser or something, but or even, you know, even Monkey Shines with a monkey. But it's kind of he's playing kind of with the conventions of a slasher movie. And it's really interesting. And Timothy Hutton gives a just a rip roaring performance for me when he's playing the evil villain part. It's kind of like Michael Keaton in evil mode. Which is a huge compliment coming from me. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, dude, you should really watch that one, too. It's great. Dark Half is a lot of fun.
0: Where do you rank thinner on the Stephen King scale? Of?
1: Thinner? Oh, fuck.
0: I'm kidding. I don't care. Okay. I don't think thinner's very good.
1: There's <laughs> stuff I do really like about it.
0: Yeah.
1: He, I really appreciate the ending.
0: Yeah, I do. I did you know? like that. That I remember that. Because I only watched that once, and I, it was right when it came out on video, so I was probably like 16, 17.
2: Yeah.
1: I wonder if Robert John Burke, a good actor, a very high quality character, actor. I I wonder if maybe he was just a bit miscast there, too. Mm. Um, I know he was definitely game for all the the makeup stuff, which may have had something to do with them hiring him. I don't know. I mean, Tom Holland, I think, wrote a, a good script or good enough script. I don't know that all the white man from town shit plays, you know, the white man from town. Oh, yeah. You know, at the end with all the gypsies in the camp and everything, I I don't know that that plays on screen the way it might written. (laughs) I think they had a different idea of how it was going to come out, and they were like, "Oh yeah, this doesn't really work, but this is our movie. We kind of got I don't know. Do we have money to reshit it? No. Well, fuck. I I don't know. Yeah, dinner is is misbegotten.
2: Just say that. (laughs) Love you though, Tom Holland. Ever talked about since
0: it's since it's come out? I don't know. if We've ever talked about. It Chapter 2, which, you know, I love the first. I think we even did a live tweet once upon a time of the first It uh, theatrical, um, which I love. It's probably my favorite, like, King.
2: I think Demis it's is
0: I, up there. But, for sure.
1: I think It Chapter 1 might be my favorite, too.
0: Yeah, at least of the horror. stuff. So I still think I probably like Stand By Me more than that. But um, did you like Chapter 2? I know it was I love pretty chapter divisive. Two.
1: I love Chapter 2 because it is it was always going to be. An uphill battle, I think, for that. Because all the best stuff in the book was always the kids' stuff, too. Yeah. But I think they did such a good job of casting the adult versions, of following on the footsteps of all, of the great job they did casting all the kids. And it is a weirder, more out there kind of deal. But again, all that stuff in the book was, too. And I, I dig it, man. It takes some wild, wild-ass swings the angel in the more angel of the morning thing
0: is that what the yeah. fuck is that? Is that when the leper vomits? Yes.
1: On okay. Yes. <laughs> that's, I don't know what that is. And I admire the hell out of it <laughs> because that's very clearly just someone going, I'm making a strong choice here. And the studio, like we, we support your strong choice. <laughs> I don't know that we get it, but you know what? Right. We trust you. And it's weird and fucked up. And I'm sure that's what he meant it to be. So fucking kudos. It's you know, and the, the Bill Hader's great. Jessica Chastain is Jessica Chastain, so she's one of the greatest actresses alive and she is not phone you know, no one's phoning it in. Yeah. It's weird and wonderful and I like it. And James Ranson, man, as Eddie. Yeah. I mean, who who was cloned from who? You know, how did they how did they match those two? That's perfect. You know, Jack Dylan Grazier, I think his name is the young version, and James Ranson is the old Eddie. I fuck me, man. That's that's
0: Yeah, young Eddie might be my favorite of the kids in in chapter one. It's tough. He's hilarious. They're, yeah,
1: he's great. He's he's legitimately <laughs> next. I mean, Finn Wolfhart is great in it too.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I just God, man. I love that first one is just it gets Stephen King right, his horror stuff. I think his like you said, you love Stand By Me. A lot of people love Shawshank, a lot of people love Green Mile. Those are all great. His horror stuff has been harder to adapt for people or harder to get right because I think that what a lot of people thought, a lot of the filmmakers and creatives, I think they thought let's just get the monsters and the gore and the scares right Mm -hmm. Um, because that's what's important. Stephen King is known for horror. You know, we got to do that and that's all in a way true. He's known for horror, but the reason why he's known for horror is because his shit works. And the reason why his shit works is because you give a shit, you care. He makes, he creates people and places them in these little worlds and you don't want to see bad things happen to them or you're, you're just invested. You give a shit about them one way or the other. And and I think a lot of these horror adaptations of Stephen uh, King really worked hard to get the scary parts right and missed the part about making you care about the characters. Yeah. And the best ones didn't, the best ones did make you care about the characters. The best ones knew what was really important. And the it chapter one is the best for me, the best horror version of getting the characters and the scares equally right.
0: Yeah, I, I uh I love the first I love it in chapter one. The second one doesn't work for me as well. I still like it.
1: Who's your favorite in the adult parts though? Is it um, hater? Is it is it
0: McAvoy? It's Probably either Hater or Jessica Chastain.
1: They are kind of the MVPs, aren't they?
0: Yeah <laughs> yeah. The the one of the problems I have with the second one is I feel like they go back to the kids too much because in the first one, we kind of see the kids have their little nightmare play out and they find they kind of discover Pennywise and stuff. And they just kind of do all that stuff again in the second one via flashbacks. Uh, and I think that's I would have liked it more if they would have just concentrated more on the adults. I know they wanted, I think, I feel like they wanted to include the kids more because it was so successful in the first movie, maybe. Yeah. But I think they were afraid of, not
1: to really because of the success of the first one. I think they were afraid that it wouldn't be received as well.
0: Yeah. And if you had asked me before, like, I would be like, yeah, hell yeah, put the kids in as much as possible. But I just didn't think the final product worked as well. I still like it, but it's, I think like chapter one is like an A plus and chapter two is like a B (laughs) minus.
1: Okay. If you were going to go out of the B, I would have been very, very, (laughs) very very sad. I wouldn't have been mad at you. I mean, that's, that's your, your 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 opinion, right?
0: the the, The Spider-Head thing homage would push it up to a B- minus anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. The the stuff as far as the the, the kids go, the the flashbacks in Chapter 2, I understand what you're saying. I I can't argue. I mean, I liked them, I think, obviously more than you did. Uh, They worked better for me, I think, than you did. Uh, Most of that stuff is stuff that was in the book that they didn't get to do in the first one. So it feels to me, someone who that's my favorite Stephen King book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So someone who, like me, who loves that book so much, it's just more stuff from the book I love.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. the, I'd never read the book before I watched the the two movies. Since then I've listened to the audio book and, the scene with the giant Paul Bunyan. Yeah, yeah. In the book. I was like, well, that's in exactly. the, the book. I wasn't sure if that was the case or not.
1: So that's that's a, a perfect example of while I was like, oh, it's the Paul Bunyan thing. This is cool. <laughs> and yes, you got to see the, uh, the the Richie Young version and then the Richie Now version where it really comes to play. Yeah, and then of course the stuff there, the like little clubhouse that was under the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they had you know that whole sequence where they built it and everything but that was for that whole smokehouse ritual thing there was a lot of stuff in the book i understand why they couldn't do in the movie and there's we're not going to discuss it christopher <laughs> that one scene the infamous yeah, scene no that to.
0: it honestly wasn't as bad in the book as i thought it was going to be because i knew about it beforehand and when i, I got, know
1: what he was trying to do i don't yeah. think he succeeded at yeah. all I don't think, he. Bad. yeah, no, well, it's
2: not, <laughs> not it's not good,
1: it's not good, but I don't think he had like great evil in mind when he was writing it. Like, Ooh, this is evil and <laughs> fucked up. I think he was like, this is my idea. This is what, okay. He was also on a lot of drugs at the time. He's, he's yeah. admitted it. So, you know, his thought process <laughs> was not always awesome. Clearly it was awesome enough most of the time. Cause he wrote all these classics <laughs> pretty fucked yep. up
0: anyway, anyway. Yeah, yes. we'll we'll get back to it again when we do our top three. I think so. Fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, is there in, anything else you wanted to cover with Salem's Lot? I've got a few Salem's Lot adjacent things I was going to bring up, but I, anything else about the specific '79 version?
1: I like everyone in it. Oh, I like to share with everyone a wonderful piece of trivia. Bonnie Bedelia is related to a couple of very. Well-known actors. Were you aware of this? I don't believe so. Okay, don't look it up because I'm about to tell you. <laughs> hey. It's one of those situations where her she goes by her first and middle names. As far as I know, I, I think that's it. It's Bonnie Bedelia. Her last name is Culkin. Oh, that's cool. She is Macaulay and Karen and Rory's aunt. Her brother, Kit, is their dad. Hmm. Yeah, her name is Bonnie Culkin.
0: Now, Kit Culkin is an actor too, right? He was. Okay
1: kind of known as a not exactly the most successful actor (laughs) and that's you know a lot of people have suggested over the years that that's why he was such a crazy stage dad right back when macaulay was one of the biggest stars in the world he was living vicariously through his kid and all the success that he himself had craved and had never reached and even watched his sister get a a degree of it Mm -hmm. you know um you know she was in die hard before Uncle Buck even came out, I think. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, Kit was an actor and raised all his kids to be actors. So I always, I I only found that out a couple of years ago and it absolutely kicked me in the balls. I was like, how did I never know this? I was like, because I don't think she goes around telling everybody
0: about it, you know. So
1: anyway, just an interesting piece of trivia for our our listeners. And that's about it. What what specifics were you thinking of, sir? Uh,
0: Well, there are two TV shows that are pretty heavily influenced from in the last couple of years. Have you seen Castle Rock?
1: I saw the first few episodes of it. I really liked it and meant to get back to it and didn't because I'm the worst.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, season two of Castle Rock takes place in Salem's Lot, oh. which I believe they call Jerusalem's Lot. Uh, I don't know yes. if that's the book.
1: Oh well, then no—that's the name of the town. Everyone just calls it Salem's Lot. And okay. he wrote. There's a short story he wrote called Jerusalem's Lot too, which is supposed to be the same town back in the eighteen hundreds or some shit. Gotcha.
0: Well, there's not. I, I don't want to, you know, spoil anything for Castle Rock. It's not. It's not the, It's not like an adaptation of Salem's Lot, but it takes place in the town, and that's the season that has Annie Wilkes. Play. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, Lizzie Kaplan.
0: Yeah. And the Castle Rock as a show, the first. And second seasons aren't really related. Uh, I don't think it's a great show. It's thought it was pretty interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff in it. I feel like it was kind of dragged out a bit on both uh, in both seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's worth watching for sure. Well, you know, whenever you get around to it. I think it's been canceled at this point. But <laughs> and the other one was Midnight Mass. Have you um have you seen Midnight Mass? Yeah, I loved uh, it.
1: The Mike Flanagan thing?
0: Mike. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And I had heard, you know, I'm going to throw up a little spoiler warning for Midnight Mass. Just because if you don't know much about Midnight Mass, I think it's the best way to go into it. Uh, For sure. But I'm going to throw out a warning because I want to get into a few specifics. When I first started watching it, I did not know really anything. I'd seen the trailer, but there's nothing in the trailer that lets you know this is a vampire story. (laughs) Yeah. And when I got to the point where it was obvious that's what it was, which... It was probably in like the second episode, maybe. I can't really remember uh, specifically, but I was kind of disappointed because vampires is one of those things kind of like zombies where it's like, I feel like I've seen enough. <laughs> but then, you know, you find something like Midnight Mass and it's like, well, this is fucking awesome. So I'm down. But yeah, I, I after I had seen a few episodes, I'd, I saw people on like Twitter and Facebook group and stuff saying that this is Mike Flanagan's Salem's lot. Uh,
1: For sure. I think most of Mike Flanagan's originals, and he's adapted a couple of Stephen King works. He, <sighs> Mike Flanagan, to me, and it, it's weird because it, he's a movie maker, you know, uh, or oh, and and you know TV or whatnot. But he he works in the visual medium of things, I'm not a novelist. But to me, he's really Stephen King's true successor in horror, mm-hmm. in terms of what I was saying to you earlier. Mike Flanagan understands the important shit is character and the horror that then these people deal with ordinary people extraordinary situations you create these people then you introduce the horror and how do they respond to it he gets that his voice he seems so very influenced by king without and some people have said that he he's ripping king off i don't think he is i think he's just he's learned all the right lessons that's all it is to me and midnight mass is some fucking kind of masterpiece me. <laughs> it really is it's it's astoundingly good and it's the same thing with haunting of hill house which may still i think be my favorite even though if asked midnight mass is probably better but i love hill house more yeah because that yeah. seems like he was like shirley jackson i'm gonna do a play on that but i'm gonna do it like stephen king mm-hmm. that that's how it reads to me it reads like he was doing a stephen king take yeah. on that and King is my favorite, so of course I'm gonna love that shit.
0: <laughs> to me, Hill House is the best thing he's done, and I don't think it's close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did, yeah, I did like Midnight Mass quite a bit. I don't, I honestly don't think it compares to Hill House as <laughs> much as I, I like it. I, I just think Hill House is phenomenal. But yeah, Midnight Mass is also great, and I love the the vampire, like the the oh. uh, the source and yes. how inhuman it is,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, especially Yeah, the scene where they shoot it and it's like, it basically flinches like a cat. It like waves its hand away. Like, you're bugging me, I'm trying to eat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, there's something about that creature is just so intense.
1: Super disturbing.
0: Yeah, one of the issues I really had with uh, Midnight Mass. Like I like Zach Gilford a lot. He's uh, <laughs> Matt Saracen, so he he's QB one. I'm gonna love him forever. <laughs> That's right. I think that he was tasked with some stuff he wasn't quite capable of with some of those monologues in uh, Midnight Mass, and I still Aww. love him. And he was great. And he was great for the most part. There were just a few, especially this, the the uh, the monologue when they're sitting on the couch right before he he meets Samantha or whatever. And there's a few things like and I, uh, like the uh, villain. Of the of the town, the the woman who was kind of like the character from the myth, Ms. Carmody. Yeah, the overly zealous Catholic. I thought was a little too heavy handed. I know that there are people like that, but that character in Midnight Mass, I thought was a little too on the nose. <laughs> but these are just like small complaints. I still think it's a it's a masterpiece as well.
1: well they better be, man. Don't be <laughs> drinking that haterade, Chris.
0: And like I the got- scene where they're the sheriff is trying to talk to the school board about like learning Bible verses and it's just what a helpless feeling that must be Mm. like to be surrounded by (laughs) these people who just can't, can't relate to you or understand what you're saying at all. Like, Oh my God.
1: It's really well written. Yeah. I think. And I, I think probably the reason why I think midnight mass is better in it's, way. I, and it's weird because I'm telling you, I think Hill house is perfect. Fucking perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Midnight mass though. Felt more. It was more difficult. It it was more confrontational in terms of. It made me think about some shit that I maybe I don't always want to think about. You know yeah. what I mean? But it did it in a way that I'm I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it. It it asked tough questions, but they're questions worth asking. I think. And it did it without being too heavy-handed or on the nose for me and i respect your take on it and i know what you mean (laughs) about about samantha sloyan's character she's almost cartoony but again man we've seen it so many times over the last Uh, years right you know we don't
0: it's not really an unrealistic portrayal it's just
1: it hurts to realize that it's not though (laughs) you know what i mean to realize that this is not cartoony bullshit this is real and it's not just a couple people there's entirely too many people just like this out there, and I fucking hate it. And so, by extension, I hate her, and I, I root for very bad things to happen to her. Um, but and, that's and, just,
0: and her final, the, the last we see of her in this show, is just chef's kiss.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's very pathetic, like <laughs> she is. You know what I mean? It's, it's very just. I wished for worse to happen to her, to be honest, because I'm a bloodthirsty bitch. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I... Fucking Midnight Mass, dude. He's... Mike Flanagan is, I think, a new master of war without question. His writing is impeccable. Or no, it's not always perfect, but it's, it's it's always good. Yeah. He had no right making that Ouija sequel that kicks ass. <laughs> yeah. There's no reason that ever should have existed, and he did. They're like, you want to come in and do something? He's like, can I make it good? Because that other one was not <laughs> so good. I'll do it if you'll let me make it good. And they're like, yeah, Mike, please, make it good. I mean, that's not... That's not... in it's not crucial. We can release something that's a piece yeah. of shit, make money off of it.
0: We've already done it once.
1: Exactly. But yeah, I mean, would we prefer it to be good as opposed to bad? I mean, I guess on on, on Fridays anyway. Come on, go ahead and do it. And he did it and it was great. I, I love Mike Flanagan. And probably yeah, in love,
0: my I'm top three is another. Well, one. I, I don't think I've seen anything of his that I don't like. The only the closest is probably the the Tom Jane. Kate Bosworth. I can't think uh, of the name of it.
1: I actually haven't seen that one yet, and I know it's on Netflix, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I not And it's not Before a bad movie or whatever. It's not a bad movie, but it's it's easily, I think, the weakest thing I've seen.
1: And that's the one that he had issues getting it distributed, or it was shelved for a bit, or some shit. Yeah. I
2: don't remember
0: what. Only other thing I wanted to say about Midnight Mass: Hamish Linklater is phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal in it. Not the first person to say that. I won't be the last. But uh, yeah, he's great in it. Five
1: stars five fucking stars bro
0: so yeah anything else on salem's lot before we move on to our top three
1: i wish i could come up with something because i don't want to do a top three um, <laughs> it's hard man it's
0: hard yeah I, I i understand so we decided well i decided for yeah, top three drag me.
2: Into-
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, uh, stephen king Could have done adaptations, but I decided to make it hard. Stop Top three Stephen King books. I'll go first. Uh, And I actually went specifically with audiobooks because I don't, I mean, I haven't read a ton of King books. Like I said earlier, read, you know, a handful, but I've listened to several of the audiobooks. So not in any particular order, but it, I'd never read it before. And the... Audiobook narration is from Steven Weber. He does the, uh, he, he he's the reader, and it's like a full performance. It's really amazing, the the energy he puts into it with the voice acting, and it's just phenomenal. And, I mean, it's like a 36-hour audiobook, something like that.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, it's a haul. And, you know, one thing that was in the book, there's a lot of stuff in the book that's not in either of the film adaptations, but maybe the best part that they didn't include was the flashback to the saloon where Pennywise is clearly like the piano player and everybody's going crazy
1: the, and it's kind of like a western but they're also shooting up gangsters or like bonnie and clyde desperado kind of thing oh, or are you talking about the one where it's like up in the mountains like a logging yeah. cabin thing yeah and the guy comes right. in and starts chopping people up
0: yeah yeah that's right yeah.
1: okay it's- gotcha
0: and I would love to have seen that in a, on screen. That that was really uh, unsettling. So it is is one from a Buick Eight, which uh, is not a great. I liked it. It was cool. Which is essentially sort of about this small town police department comes into sort of a guardianship of a of a what looks like a car but is not really a car. I won't go into details about it because it's kind of part of the story. The narrators. One is James Redbourne.
1: I know who he is. He was the vice president in uh, Independence Day. Yeah. He's one of those, the ultimate that guys. <laughs> Usually yeah. played a prick.
0: Yeah. The other guy is a senator in the first X-Men movie. I want to say his name's Bruce. Bruce Davison. So yeah, Tales from a Buick 8, it sort of takes place in flashbacks partially. So that's kind of part of the stories in present day and part of it is in the past. And so they have two narrators for for each section. James Reborn and Bruce Davison. And it's, it's an interesting book and it wasn't at all what I was expecting. I didn't know anything about what the plot was before before I listened to it, but I really liked it. The third one would be On Writing, which is the first King book I actually ever read. <laughs> it was his, uh, <laughs> his basically memoir and uh, writing kind of instructional book. He does the audiobook himself. And there's a lot of cool stories about, you know, him, his childhood and and him Kind of honing his craft and like learning how to write, basically, and it's really entertaining. On top of just you know trying to be uh, helpful to writers and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, most my top three. Say again?
1: I was just going to say most writers will agree that it's one of the best books about how to write Mm -hmm. ever, ever done. Super helpful and informative, and it's anybody who is interested in writing should read it. Period.
0: Seconded. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. and also the memoir stuff like you said is great yeah or listen to it read it listen to it it's interesting to read it though because seeing it you know how he's breaking up things and yeah the examples he uses you know because you're reading the written word it, that's cool too not not to say that listening to him explaining to you isn't you know got its uh its prose i'm sure it does i should hunt that down and check it out <laughs>
0: but yeah that's that's my three so time to kill your children aj what's the well, top three stephen king books you can throw in some honorable mentions
1: i mean i kind of have to because i mean there's <laughs> stuff like in recent years i really loved really loved the institute from like a few years ago 2019 i think is it one of his absolute all-time best books probably not but it was one of the best reads of his that i read in a long time it just it just felt like classic King and The Outsider from a few years before that is great. I really love Doctor Sleep. Eleven twenty two sixty three is some kind of that's that might be his best book in like the last fifteen years or so. I think it's likely. It's probably eleven really twenty two sixty three. Yeah,
0: I think that was the first book of his I read after On Writing because I've always been kind of uh, interested in the Kennedy assassination. Do you, oh. What do you think about the Hulu show? Have you watched that?
1: Yes, I have. I think it's great. I think it's one of the better. Seems like within the last five to seven years, they're just people were like, oh, you can make really good movies and TV shows out of Stephen King stuff. Let's do that again. And it seems like we're getting them at a clip that we haven't since the, the, the 80s. You know, and a lot of it's been really good, or or good enough. You know, good as opposed to bad. I've liked more of yeah. it than I haven't. Uh, some of it has been, of course, you know, utter and complete shit. But eleven twenty two sixty three is good. That's one of the better ones, as opposed to Under the Dome, which they <laughs> they just you know, under the
0: dome is another to that. one. That I've, oh God, it's another one I've listened to the audiobook book of uh, probably late last year, early this year. But um, once I finished it, and I you know I liked that book quite a bit. I didn't like the I don't want to be heretical, but I didn't like the ending at all.
1: <laughs> a lot of people don't like the ending of it. It's okay. Yeah.
0: But it's um, okay. But the, overall, it was a really good book. And it made me kind of want to watch the show. Because I watched the show initially when it first popped up on Netflix or some streaming service years ago. And watched the first season and then never went back. I just didn't like it very much, so I didn't ever finish it.
1: It's not great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I kind of wanted to go back and watch it after I, having read the book. It's still
1: not great. It might be worse. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> You've read the book. It might be worse.
0: <laughs> but anyway.
1: Anyway, yeah, I love that book. You know, and no, I don't think the end is
0: one of his best.
1: <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a thing he does really well. It's, it's again, the small town, very distinct characters, all with their own connections to each other or whatever. And then weird shit goes down. How do they react to it? It's That's the thing he does better than anybody. But something that's a little bit different, I really like Duma Key. Um, the one about the guy who loses an arm in a, a construction accident and recovers in Florida, and, and it's his rehab and weird shit begins to happen, and it, it's really good. Lisey's story is great. I I, I swear I'm not just going to list, like, half of his shit, I promise you. <laughs> I really do want to see Leesy's story on the Apple TV. I don't have Apple TV, but I really want to see the Julianne Moore uh, adaptation of it because it looks
0: good. Is that a horror yeah. or
1: Yeah. It's kind of
0: horror-adjacent. Because I, I think I say... watched the trailer for that, and it didn't look like it, but I've never read the uh, the book. So
1: it's I... probably more dark fantasy. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to be, you know, get, you know, pedantic and specific. It's, it's dark fantasy. (laughs) There's definitely some horrifying shit in it, but I, I don't think I would call it horror. Uh, I really do like his bag of bones. I like the two that came at the same time, desperation and the regulators. But if I if I'm being honest and I have to be honest, I got to go with the classic stuff as my favorites because that's what, that's why I'm here talking to you about all. That's why I know all the shit. (laughs) Stephen King. I know because of the early ones I, I read that changed my fucking life, bro. And number one, Oh, I'll go, I'll go back. Okay. It's gotta be probably The Shining. That was the, the first novel I read by him that was the purest hit of just fuck you in the face horror. You know, Salem's Lot got pretty hard at times and was definitely pretty scary. Those vampires were no joke. But The Shining is just, it's the fucking Shining, dude. That's why I get mad at Kubrick's version because I I think (laughs) he, technically speaking, his movie is impeccable on a craft level and it misses everything that made the book important.
0: <laughs> you know, I I know you hate, uh, hate. Shining. I, I really, that's one of my favorite horror movies. I've never read the book, but you mentioned Dr. Sleep earlier, and we've talked about Flanagan earlier. After I watched Dr. Sleep, I went down a, a, a shining rabbit hole on online, and uh, I just, I'd heard that he incorporated elements of that into Dr. Sleep. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of read how the book resolves the, the shining resolves and i just thought man that is amazing that flanagan was able to sequelize and remake you know the shining essentially <laughs> it's,
1: it's a, one it of the most through. impressive things anybody's ever done for me <laughs> really no it really is and i know that sounds like hyperbole, hyperbole no, I, but I, not.
0: I haven't even it's, read the book and i agree
1: <laughs> yeah it's nuts because he had the most Thankless fucking task. More people are with you regarding the original Shining than with me and Big Steve, his own self. That's a it's an unimpeachable classic for the masses of, of of horror fans. And for people that even wouldn't generally say I love horror, casual uh watchers of a horror movie here and there, a lot of them would go, oh, but I've seen The Shining. That movie's fucking scary shit. I like that one. And that's totally cool. Mike Flanagan had to make a movie that made those people happy. He had to make a movie that made people like me and Big Steve happy. He had to make a movie that made people who loved the original book happy, who loved the sequel that Stephen King wrote happy, and somehow also kind of sequelize Kubrick's at the same time he was adapting the book, which is not a sequel to Kubrick's at all. (laughs) He had to make like at least three different movies, basically. All at the same time. And he did each fucking one. And I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. And the most amazing achievement that movie does to me, beyond just being a five-star horror classic, it makes me like the Stanley Kubrick movie retroactively more (laughs) than I ever have. I hate his adaptation as an adaptation. And again, I, I, I tell you, I think one of my biggest problems with it is that it's so well done, That if he had just gotten the script and the characters right, it could be, to me, the greatest horror movie ever made. The potential was there. Yeah. But, you know, and again, this is all subjective. There's many people who don't need my fucking opinion who will tell (laughs) you that The Shining is, in fact, regardless of what I think, it is the greatest horror movie ever made. And that's great. Let them have it. I'm not trying to take it away. It's still amazing what Mike Flanagan did because that's how I feel about that movie. And he made me kind of look at it like you know what, as a more than Doctor Sleep is a sequel to The Shining. I'll look at The Shining. Kubrick's The Shining is a prequel to Doctor Sleep, and it works better. It plays better in my memory. I don't know. I it's it's fucking amazing. So so so. so. You know,
0: to to interject my own comic book nerdiness onto it. the <laughs> the the framework of Doctor Sleep retroactively making The Shining better. I felt the same way about andrew garfield's spider-man in far from home retroactively making his movies actually i've always kind of liked the first garfield Mm spider-man the second one i think is really bad (laughs) but it was better it was made somewhat better by his sort of redemption semi-redemption arc in 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 far from home or no way home i should say
1: and it's weird because that's how i think about it is it, it not even in terms of the story or the character it's just because that carries over to this, too. It's almost like Kubrick's The Shining has redemption with me in a in a small way, to be sure. Yeah. But it's there. And that's solely because of what Flanagan was able to do with Doctor Sleep. It's amazing. So, getting back. Number three, The Shining. Number two, The Stand. Gotta be The Stand. That's also, I would say, dark fantasy with very strong horror elements. Mm-hmm. But The Shining is pure horror. In the same way it is pure horror. And that's my number one. Got to go with it, man. It's just the ultimate horror novel to me. It's everything I could hope for and more. And that motherfucker is over a thousand pages long. I read it when I was probably 13 years old or, or 12. It was within a year of it being published. I had gotten it from the library in hardcover. I read Misery before. That was the point when he put within one calendar year, it came out, Misery came out, Eyes of the Dragon came out, and the Tommy Hawkers came out. Man, well, Eyes of the Dragon came out in mass market. It it had come out on a small publisher, indie publisher, before a few years uh, before that. But they
0: so were he all was on the super cocaine. Uh,
1: apparently, yeah. <laughs> yeah only he, he, was, he, he, was, he was he was a he machine. Was market. He was a machine bro. Yeah. Just unstoppable. And in a calendar year, it was it misery I or it eyes of the dragon, misery and Tommy knockers. And I read misery. I read eyes of the dragon. And then I think I went to it. And then I jumped back to the Tommy knockers when it was new. But regardless, I was like 12. I read it in two days, Ooh. two days over a thousand pages. And I did that shit in two days. That, that is all I did. You know, it's all I did for two days straight. And it rewired my brain. I, there's no way I could ever pick anything other than it as the number one. It is it is it is my ultimate horror novel. I love it. I worship it. Not like a religion or anything, but I mean, really. I mean, it's it, if I fucking did worship it like a religion, it's not any worse than Scientology and a bunch of rich people do that. That's a whole different conversation about organized religion. You and I will get to that on the podcast We're because we're going to solve all of the world's problems. All of the world's problems will be solved one or another on this podcast. So that's stuff for you guys to look forward to, listeners. Make sure you tune in. But yeah, uh, The Shining, is, The Stand,
0: it. The Stand is his longest book, right? The uncut. Uh, uh
1: it's close to it. The uncut one also over a thousand pages. You know what, here? <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm, I've got. It is one thousand. Well, I mean, it, I don't know. We're going hardcover or whatever, but. Yeah. It's noted as 1,138 pages for it, 1,152 for the stand. Mm. So less than 20 pages down. more. Yeah, it's it's longer, though. Are there any other that are over 1,000? Uh, Under the Dome is 1,074, and that's it for the over 1,000. And then, of yeah. course, if you want to get crazy and count his Dark Tower saga as one story, that's his <laughs> ultimate. Yeah.
0: I, kind of, I, mean, I was kind of surprised you didn't have any of those uh, listed.
1: Well, it's just like Lord of the Rings for me. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and the Lord of the Rings is, is more pure and honest about what I'm saying in terms of that's one big story. He literally wrote that as one thing, and they made him cut it into three pieces. They They couldn't publish it all as one mm-hmm. volume, whereas Stephen King, I know, intended it to be his magnum opus his lord of the rings he did not write it all at one time (laughs) he wrote it over many a year right so that's that's really more different novels but i i can't i can't really say one of them is there's ones i like more than other ones but it's all one big story to me so that's his ultimate shit
0: i have the uh the, the paperback set of the of the dark tower series i've only read the first one and i read it in the lead up to the movie coming out and then I watched the movie and it kind of killed my excitement, for the, even though I know it's it shouldn't. It just kind of killed my excitement for the book. So I haven't gone back to to finish those. It's
1: but. that's a really it's just a shitty adaptation. It's like The Shining. Yeah. I actually don't mind the movie in taking it as what it is. As an adaptation of the book, it sucks. It sucks ass. <laughs> and it makes me mad because Idris Elba could have played Roland from the books. If they'd yeah. given him a chance to play that character, murders it.
0: That's the thing, Absolutely.
1: like
0: him and I like McConaughey. I don't know how well he I don't know about him as the version from the books, but like, it's
1: it's different, but he's having fun and, and I like yeah. it. Yeah. But
0: like those two as the protagonist and antagonist in a like a Dark Tower film series that sounds like
1: Sign it should have up. been. Yeah, it should have been great. It's yeah. not. It's not. <laughs> it's a very generic studio sci-fi action fantasy yeah. thing. I thought it was entertaining enough. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm enjoying if I remove myself from what I know the story is and just watch this on its own terms. It's fine. I completely forget about it when it's over, except I, I you know I know the story. Anyway, it's it's it is what it is. The books, though, you definitely should keep reading. And for me that first book is the weakest of all of them it really gets it really kicks into the gear of the whole rest of the series with the second one when you read the second one that's what the series is going to be that's so what it's going to be one like
0: was a ser- was published in long
1: a, time before
0: it's a serial in a magazine right yeah and then he reformatted it and added stuff to make it yeah. a novel right
1: it was stuff he had written i think when he was in college even yeah, yeah, I just love
0: it. It was it was it was cool enough. I, I didn't dislike it, but it didn't. It
1: is far and away my least favorite. Like, honestly, bro, when I first read because, I mean, we had all heard about it. It had never been available to the masses, but he had written part two and that was going to come out. So they finally do a mass market version of the gunslinger. And I read it. And I'm like, ah, I'm finally getting to read this. And I read it. And I'm like, it's fine like there's a couple parts i really like and then the rest of it was like this is what i was looking forward to all this time because this is not the end all be all that i thought it was going to be it's it it's among my least favorite stephen king that i've read oh my god what's going on (laughs) i guess i'll read the new one because that's why they put this one out but i mean i hope i hope i like it more and then i read the, the part two and the part two drawing of the three amazing absolutely amazing and then from that point it's just killer Absolutely killer. So please, please, <laughs> please give part two a chance. Trust I, me.
0: I fully, yeah, I fully intend to. I, I I bought the set off a friend of mine a couple years ago, and I just I'm right now about a third the way through the stand, and cool. I'll probably finish that before I start any other. I'm I'm notoriously bad about starting five or six books at a time, <laughs> but I'm not going to start any more King books until I get through the stand. So. That's my man. Maybe my next uh, next king after that.
1: I think you'll really like it, man. I know I I completely understand what you're saying. Not just about the movie, not really lighting a fire (laughs) under your ass to get after more. But I I can only imagine how many people read the first entry The Gunslinger and were like, it's fine. How many more are there? Fuck, (laughs) man. Really? I don't know, man. And then I bet a lot of people don't go on, you know, King Completus obviously will. And they're going to be really happy but fuck bro it's i understand but i'm i'm here to tell you not just do i understand it's it, it it's right up there with like my least favorite king stuff like with uh, gerald's game not a fan of gerald's game the novel new
0: you like the movie
1: loved the movie, the movie. which is amazing i i was like i was from missouri show me mike flanagan you fucking show me something because this yeah. book is is easily my least favorite stephen king you best show me something and mike flanagan was like oh okay bitch i got you
0: it's like i'm gonna put carla cogino and greenwood. Bruce davidson in this motherfucker greenwood <laughs> bruce greenwood damn it
1: it's okay we were talking about bruce davidson earlier. i forgive <laughs> you i don't know that bruce greenwood would forgive you but i forgive you but yeah carla Gugino, i think should have won every fucking award in <laughs> existence for that movie that's amazing it, it, I really do not like that book. And it's it floors me what Flanagan did with it. He wrote it right. He cast it right. He directed it. It's, it's That's one of the better Latter-day adaptations, too. Fuck Mike Flanagan, man. Dude, can do, <laughs> he can just do it all. I love Mike Flanagan.
0: Well, while we're talking about Flanagan, we'll, I got one more thing about him to bring up. I'm going to have a list of, of some trailers I was going to ask you about if you've seen. And I'm going to start with The Midnight Club, the which is Mike Flanagan's new Netflix series that's coming next month. Have you seen the trailer for that yet?
1: I have. Looks killer.
0: Looks cool. Were you a Christopher Pike reader? I mean, he his stuff is kind of young adult, so you were probably aging out of that by the time he started.
1: I literally just missed it, and my younger sister, two years younger than me, she, she caught the train.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, she had at least 10 of his books or something like that. She had a lot, yeah. and I remember the first one. I mean, I remember what it looked like. It was called Remember Me. I mean, I remember yeah. that shit. Uh, so no, I, I never read the Midnight Club, but it, the what what Flanagan did with it looks cool, and the people I know who read it are very excited.
0: Yeah, did I'm actually read? I'm trying to read it. I mean, that, though it's a young adult novel, it, it, it's a quick read. I'm trying to read through it before this, the series drops on Netflix. I'm about thirty pages in, I guess. I started. So
1: reading. it's not something that you read back at the time.
0: No, I I did like Christopher Pike. You know, I didn't read a lot. Mostly, I read comics as a kid. I would read books every once in a while, and a couple that I read of Pikes that I really liked were Chain Letter and Chain Letter Two.
2: Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, when I know we did last summer, was coming out. You know, eight or nine years later, I thought they were, it was going to be an adaptation of Chain Letter because it's sim- essentially the same, you know, plot. And it's kind of weird because I'm going on a Christopher Pike. Uh, tangent but uh that's okay the first chain letter is fairly pedestrian i guess or kind of soft like you know it's a it's it was made it was written in the early 80s and it's for teenagers or young or preteens so it's kind of scary but uh it's fairly tame and the story is similar to like i know it last time where these kids hit a guy they think he's dead they bury him and then they start getting letters a year later saying that the guy saying that you know i know what you did or whatever and it's trying to make them do things uh, and it's, it's, it was pretty good. I really liked it as a kid. And it, it was years after it had come out when I actually discovered it and read it. I was probably 11 or so. So it was early 90s. And then he did a sequel called Chain Letter 2, The Ancient Evil, several years after that. But but I read them like a month apart, basically. And the second one is gnarly. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's gruesome deaths. There's The kids are having sex with each other. One of the kids, like, accidentally... Fucks a demon possessed corpse. It's what? Wow. It's so, I and I really, you know, that was like uh, it blew my mind as a 11, 12 year old, whatever I was. Yeah. And then I read a few other of his books. And so, yeah, I'm trying to read The Midnight Club before the movie comes out. I believe the show is supposed to sort of adapt several of Pike's books as the series goes on because it's like about a group, kind of like The Midnight Society and Are You Afraid of the Dark, where these kids are telling scary stories to each other and stuff. But cool. But yeah, it looks cool. And I believe he is directing at least the pilot and then maybe I'm not sure if he's directing every episode. It might be more like Bly Manor where he is more of like a producer. And
1: it seems like every other one he's done since Hill House. Like he he directed every episode of Hill House and then only a handful of Bly Manor and then every episode of Midnight Mass. And I think it's going to be another only handful on this one. And then the next one that he's doing now or just finished uh, Follow the House of Usher. I think oh, he directed. Yeah. I think he directed every episode of that too. So it's like every other one. He's like, "All right, I'm gonna do every. I'm <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna commit. I'm gonna do every fucking one." And then after that, he's like, "I gotta, I can't do that again. I gotta, that I gotta pull back." Up, it, right? Mike, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so he's doing it smart. He's doing it smart.
0: Uh, what about Hellraiser? Have you seen the trailer for that?
1: Fuck yeah, I have.
0: It looks pretty badass, I think. It
1: looks awesome. <laughs> I only really, I, I love the first two. I like the third one, and there's a lot of stuff in it I really dig. Anthony Hickox is just a madman. And I, I like his crazy style. Part four has some elements I enjoy, but overall I don't think it's successful. And then after that is just different, different flavors of shit.
0: <laughs> Total shit. Yeah, the, the only Hellraisers I've seen, I believe are the first two and the one that has Henry Cavill. I don't remember what, which one that is. Couldn't tell you. It's terrible. It's, it's from like the early aughts, like probably 2002 or three, I think.
1: Okay, uh, yeah, Horrible. I think Lance
0: Hendrickson might be in it as well. Um,
1: is it Hell World?
0: I think so. It's got like yeah. a matrixy thing going.
1: Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, the CD-ROMBA. Fuck that noise. It's really bad, it's really bad. It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> so, but I do really that, like I was just going to say, given that, the trailer for the new Hellraiser is better than those movies. Yeah. So as long as it, you know, and I said this on Twitter, as long as the movie itself is not the exact opposite of what the trailer shows it's gonna be one of the best ones in the series yeah. um it just it looks like it's good bro i can't wait i'm fucking stoked bring
0: it yeah i, I really like the first two and i I need to see the third one still i've, I've heard that's like the last good one so it's uh, fun but the new, uh but yeah the new one looks looks intense i'm i'm excited to, to check that one out
1: you do need to see part three because, again, it's Anthony Hickox, who we have discussed on Small Screeners before, for Full Eclipse, our very first inaugural episode. Yay! But, yeah, I think he did Hellraiser 3 right after doing Warlock 2, around at the time of Full Eclipse and everything. So it was around that same era. So he was in that mode of fucking exuberant gore, craziness, <laughs> yeah. woo! You know.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'll like it. It's fun. <laughs> uh, Not as good as the first two, but but definitely... Good as opposed to bad.
0: What about werewolf by night?
1: I can, I am so down dude.
0: <laughs> yeah. I it am, looks amazing. Uh, and I, I'm really hoping the, and I, I assume this is the case, but I'm really hoping the series is reflected in the trailer where it is in black and white. It looks like an old horror movie from the sixties.
1: I feel like it has to, to. like if, it, if it, if that was just bullshit to draw us in and the, the show <laughs> itself doesn't yeah. have that vibe and is in color. You know, people gonna revolt. I'll fucking revolt. We'll all lose our shit. So no, I don't. I think I think we're good. I think they they showed us what they're gonna deliver. And yeah, man. You know, I watched that trailer and it was like, AJ needs new shots. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah. I could not be more down, dude. I, I want it yeah, I've been, today.
0: I've been reading uh, the Werewolf by Night series from the '70s. I've got the Marvel Unlimited app, so I can read a lot of old comics that I don't really have access to <laughs> without spending a lot of money on.
1: Oh, choose. Mr. Fancy Pants. Uh,
0: <laughs> and it's a very cool. It's a very cool series, and I'm excited to see the deal with the with the uh, the show. I, I, you get a glimpse of Man Thing in there, oh, which yeah. I didn't think we would see. I mean, we've seen it in a movie once before, on sci-fi, like 15 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and a notoriously bad. I've never actually seen it. But uh, I think they'll probably get it right in, in this series. But, yeah, I'm very well, stoked for that.
1: Yeah, I think... Um I think it looks like they're, I mean, clearly they're doing different shit. Yeah. And this is what I think a lot of people are excited about, that the brand is strong enough now that they're they're able to branch out. They're able to do something like a She-Hulk that is lighter and funnier and looser, you know. Um, And then this, you know. And uh, Moon Knight was introduced in Werewolf by Night back yeah. in the day, you know. So, I mean, this is there's a pedigree here <laughs> and I'm excited. You're, you're reading all that stuff back in the seventies. You're going to get to, to get into that shit.
2: Well,
0: Yeah. In the, in the early nineties, there was kind of a revival of like Marvel horror stuff, like a new Ghost ghostwriter. Uh, they did a dark comic book. Morbius had a comic book. It was all, oh, it was yeah. called the midnight suns uh, label. And there were a bunch of horror comics. And, you know, later on I found out, well, they, they had a uh, Marvel had a horror line essentially in the seventies. And that's what I'm kind of reading. I'm reading Werewolf by Night, Tomb of Dracula, which is where Blade came from. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Son of Satan. There was another big one that I'm, Man-Thing, there's another big one. Oh, Ghost Rider, obviously. Yeah. So it's cool. I'm enjoying going back and reading all that original Marvel horror stuff from, from the 70s that I've never gotten a chance to dig into before.
1: It's a lot of fun. I read a lot of that shit as a kid. Um, I'm sure I read a lot of werewolf by night and just don't remember the specific. I know I remember Moon night, but I remember vampire stuff and werewolf stuff that scared me as a kid. Uh, and I know it was Marvel. That's one of the reasons why I liked the Tom Cruise version of the mummy because the, the whole prodigium or whatever the fuck that was called with, you know, Dr. Jekyll and the yeah. Russell Crowe everything. Aside from that, the, the everything that was gonna connect it to the dark universe thing, the movie itself felt a lot like those comics that i read as a kid and the old marvel horror comics from like the late 70s so that's why i dig that shit and i'm i'm stoked that you're getting to experience that you now that marvel unlimited thing's pretty cool
0: well the only other trailer uh that i had listed 38 at the garden which is you know we've talked been almost exclusively about horror stuff but uh, this is a documentary on hbo coming hbo max essentially about jeremy lynn and his like you know, the Linsanity thing that blew up about, It was about a decade ago now, unbelievably.
1: <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't follow sports. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I know insanity. I know Jeremy Even Linsanity.
0: people who don't follow sports, at least 10 years ago, they heard of Jeremy Lin.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, 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 oh, yeah. The, the Chinese kid who played for uh, uh, the Knicks, wasn't it? Yeah. They they kind of have a, a vague idea. Yeah. But yeah there, I didn't know the doc- they did the documentary. No, I haven't seen that trailer, dude.
0: Yeah, it, I think it just dropped the last couple of days.
1: Okay, well, I'll definitely will Yeah,
0: it's, it's very, you know, I, I was a, I got really into basketball around 14 and um, followed the NBA religiously all throughout, basically all throughout Shaq's career because he was my favorite player. There's no teams in where I'm at. I mean, there's no professional team, so I follow players that I like. <laughs> and uh, sure, sure. once Shaq retired, I didn't really have a favorite player, so I kind of, my interest started to wane a little. And then this Jeremy Lin thing happened, and I just thought it was amazing. And so he became my favorite player almost immediately, and uh, I followed him for a few years. His career kind of petered out largely because of injuries and stuff. But uh, yeah, it hit his that whole insanity thing really like rejuvenated my love of like basketball. Uh, <laughs> and so i always appreciated him and that whole era. So I'm excited to see this HBO doc about it. That's supposed to be out in October as well, but, uh, that's all I got for trailers. You, have you seen any, anything that speaks your interests lately? The stuff you've been watching recently?
1: I don't watch movies. Um, no, uh, shit. I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see Secret Invasion. I, I'm not going to be like, oh, I fucking can't wait. I mean, I'm like, oh, it looks good. I don't know those comics, so, I mean, I know enough about it to know it's about the Skrull invasion and everything, and, uh, yeah, it looks interesting. I'll definitely watch it. What else did Marvel do? Obviously, Wakanda Forever looks killer. Mm-hmm. I saw uh, a little bit of footage, not so much the trailer, but footage of them making Extraction 2, the Netflix action movie. with. Yeah, um, I saw
0: that on YouTube pop up earlier, and I never got around to watching
1: it. That it looks killer. It looks killer, and they're you know talking to Hemsworth, talking to the director, and the director's like, you know, you get to make a sequel, you have a two after your title, you've got to do two times the action. And hey. I'm like, yeah,
2: I'm like, yeah,
1: yeah I mean, I,
0: want, I think we, I think we had talked about it on another podcast somewhere or another, but Extraction, like, awesome action. Didn't love the movie as a whole so much. I liked it, didn't love it, but the action is. Pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, really but
1: cool you still pieces. love it because it is an action movie, dude. And it <laughs> delivered on that front. So don't give me this hard shit about character or plot blah, blah, blah. I'm kidding. No, I know what you mean. But the, for me, though, the action in the movie was enough to make it one of the best action movies of that year. And it was a nice little treat when we were all fucking freaking out in the early days of COVID. I love Extraction. And the fact that they're going to go bigger and badder with the sequel is like. <laughs> so that's going to be cool. far as recent stuff that I have seen. Um, I finally got around to seeing Old, the M Night Shyamalan movie about the beach that makes you old. Um, I haven't seen
0: that one yet, but uh, it's weird and fucked up,
1: and it's very much like a feature-length uh, Twilight Zone episode. It's it's well done, it's effective, it's good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I love it or that I'll watch it a lot. Yeah, I'm glad I saw it. I'm definitely glad I saw it. I think you, I think you should watch it at least the one time. Uh, it just, or I don't know about just, but it's on HBO Max. And I just noticed that it was there. It may only have just showed up or it may have been there for months. But yeah, that's how we watched it. I watched um, Morbius. I liked Morbius, man. I don't give a fuck. I don't care what people (laughs) say. It's a superhero vampire movie. It was fun. I dug it. Um, We watched Nope. Did we talk about Nope? I think you and I may have talked about Nope, but not on a podcast.
0: Yeah, we we did. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, I loved Nope. I thought it was awesome.
1: Nope is at least four and a half out of five for me. Nope is amazing. One of the best movies of the year. I got to watch that Johnny Mnemonic in black and white that just got put out. Yeah. I think that helps the movie. I never disliked it, but for whatever reason, it probably doesn't hurt that we're looking back on 90s movies now and just the way they went about doing movies and the way this one is. It, it's cool in black and white. I think it's super, it, it's a fun little grimer, grimier and grittier B-movie, futuristic B-movie than, than I think a lot of people look back on it as. Mm-hmm. I dug it. The new Fletch movie that a lot of people don't know exists with John Hamm. <laughs> Confess, Fletch is one of my favorites of the year easily. It's um just a great time. Uh, the new one that dropped yesterday with Allison Janney, Lou, mm. not great but good, and Allison and Janney is great in it. She gets she to really, fight.
0: She usually is.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is her. It's kind of an action movie. It's more of a thriller, but there's a couple of action scenes, including one where she fights Daniel Bernhardt of all people, and it's a groovy little fight scene. I really dug it. And I think, oh, I also finally got around to seeing Venom, which I really enjoyed. And I'm looking forward to part two. I guess that's about it. Oh, I also did show my wife my soul to take because she'd never seen it. That movie is a still, is a fucking, <laughs> it's a mess. It's a fucking. Is that Craven? Yes.
0: I don't know if I saw that or not.
1: I can't remember. I cannot, cannot party with that movie, dude. <laughs> it's awful. It is so awful. She was like, you know, this is this is not good. This is bad. But it's bad in a way that is watchable to me. I'm <laughs> I'm having fun watching it. Uh, but no, I would not say this is a good movie. And I was like, well, I'm glad you're enjoying watching it because I, I, I think
0: this sucks. Who Who's in the cast in that?
1: John McGarrow, I think is his name probably has the most well rounded career coming out of it. You can he's a, stop
0: because I don't know who that is.
1: <laughs> he's a, he's a character actor. He's been in like he's been in a lot of stuff you would probably know him to okay. see him. The other one that you might know, do you ever watch Bates Motel?
0: I watched like the first three seasons probably okay. Do
1: you know Norman's half brother or whatever he is?
0: Yeah, he was in Under the Dome as well.
1: Oh is he? Mike Norman. No, 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 no. Uh, Max Terrio. Oh, okay. I think you're confusing Mike Vogel with that dude. <laughs> the one okay. who gets together with Olivia Cook. Okay, the one that is like Vera Farmiga's kid but looks, from somewhere. He whatever. looks
0: like Mike Vogel, then.
1: Yeah, not not like. I guess him. I he's, just
0: thought Mike Vogel was in Bates Motel.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go. That is the kid who is the lead in My Soul to Take, and he's good in it because he's he's doing what he's been asked to do. It's just all I know is thank God Wes Craven's last movie was Scream Four. <laughs> And not My Soul to Take. It would make me sad thinking about how that's his last movie. And I'm sorry I had to be negative about it. I just, I, I don't like that one. And a lot of people always accuse me of liking everything. And you like all the shittiest movies. Well, I don't like that fucking <laughs> shitty movie. So get off my dick.
0: I, uh, yeah, I don't have anything to say about it because I don't think I've actually seen it. I of you the just, you You know, can I,
1: live your life without it.
0: Yeah, I'm not gonna seek it out. I've never seen John and Mnemonic. I've always kind of been curious about it, and I, I'd still kind of like to see it. Morbius, I did not watch, and I probably won't. Uh, <laughs> I just don't have a lot of interest in it. Venom, I kind of like. Well, I wouldn't say I liked it. The first one I thought was okay, but I I didn't like it enough to watch the second one. And if you had asked 13 year old Chris, "Hey, you want to watch a movie with Venom and Carnage in it?" I would have. My head would have exploded.
2: <laughs> and, and
1: adult think. chris is like yeah
0: like, eh, no, maybe
1: no, not no, right. right now <laughs> probably all
0: right maybe it's on netflix one day maybe i don't know
1: spoiled we're all so spoiled
0: <laughs> to, yeah i think it's just to me like venom without spider-man it just is i'm just not as interested so i didn't think the nerd was doable, but i didn't really like it either <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you hear me uh channel erica from stranger things <laughs> every time i do that that's what i'm doing i'm thinking more of sense. her looking at more, looking uh, at him more. going yeah. Really like
0: yeah. forgive.
1: <laughs> Nerds. True, true, true.
0: But is that, uh, is that all you got for recent stuff?
1: That's all I got, man. That's all I got. Well,
0: I've I've got, it's been a while since we've done a recent watch stuff because of, of the way we kind of broke up our schedule for recording stuff. The last one we did was, I guess, Batman under the red hood. It's been a while since we recorded that one. Uh, so I'm not going to do everything, but I've got several, uh, things I wanted to kind of talk about just briefly. Uh, I
1: hear papers riffling. <laughs> You're about to unleash. Bring it, dude.
0: Well,
1: Bring uh, it.
0: Do this, it. This um, this past weekend, I'm not going to go into detail on any of these because these are all fresh, freshly released theatrically. It's going to be a well while before some people get to see them. I'm sure. Uh, although I think Clerks 3 is going to be on Blu-ray in like two or three weeks. Right on. But yeah, I saw Clerks 3 and I really enjoyed it. It's better than reboot. If <laughs> that's uh, a uh, a. I must. I,
1: I must ask you though. I must ask you, does it still feel, even though it's better than Reboot, does it feel kind of like in the vein of Reboot in the sense that it's for the fans?
0: Very, very much so.
1: Because it seems but I like... I do
0: think it's it's handled better than Reboot. You know, because Reboot is similar to Jan Silent Bob Strikes Back, where it's like, he, he's not worried, Smith's not worried about anything except for just view askew fan service. That's yeah. all those movies are about, and... Clark 3 is about more than that, even though that is also, you know, something that you get.
1: Yeah. And I guess I don't mean like so much just fan service as he's he's just and I guess it's the same thing, although I don't in my head, I don't intend it that way. I just mean that it's much like Rob Zombie to me. <laughs> oh, boy. It's kind of no. But in that he kind of understands, look, my movies are really going to appeal to the people that like my movies, which sounds really stupid and obvious, but. You know, it's just, it's almost like they both understand I make a kind of movie that appeals to the people that would like that kind of movie. And it turns out they are fans of mine. That's what they are. They're fans of my movies. I really should only make movies, you know, that's really all I want to do anyway. I just want to make movies for the people that would like it. I'm going to make movies for my fans. And it feels like that's okay. I don't mean that as a slam. That's what I felt when I saw Reboot, and it's also what I felt when I saw Clerks 2 years before. It's like, yeah, there's stuff in it that could appeal to people that don't generally go, yeah, I like Kevin Smith movies. I'm a, Kev- I'm a fan of Kevin Smith movies, but mostly it does. Yeah. And the preview for Clerks 3 gave me that, that same feeling. It's like he made a movie for his fans, and that's okay. You know, yeah. why not? I'm one of his and fans. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I'm one of them. It makes me happy. I got a new movie. I'm glad to hear you like it it because I know how much you love his stuff. I I know you're a big fan. And so to me, someone who's been watching his stuff since I was 19 or 20, hearing that you enjoyed it a lot, that just tells me all I need to know. Really. It's like Chris loved it. (laughs) I really don't need to hear anything
0: else. I'm ready to go. Yeah, it, it's fairly similar in, like, tone to Clerks 2. I think that's the closest of, of, like, any of the USQ stuff as far as the tone. And I really liked it. It's a little, you know, I don't want to go into any more details. I liked it. I can see some people not liking it for different reasons. But, again, I don't want to go into details. So I think you'll like it. I think most Kevin Smith fans, if if you're digging, if, you, if you're still a Kevin Smith fan and not somebody that, like, I used oh, to like Kevin Smith, but his last 10 years has sucked. Well, then you're probably not going to like this either. But but I loved it, and uh, I'm excited to to pick it up uh, on Blue in a couple weeks. Also, a couple of horror movies. Uh, Last weekend, I caught Pearl, the sequel to uh, X, which I love X. Ty West X, that came out actually only about six months ago, and now the sequel's already out.
1: And we Um, got Maxine coming.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I'm excited about that. Uh, Pearl is not as good, and to me, I didn't like it as much as X. It's a very different movie. Hmm. A very different type of movie, but also it's great. And Mia Goth is has an unbelievable performance in in Pearl. Also co wrote it, which is cool. And the other one was Barbarian, which a lot of people are talking about. It's crazy. I loved it, and I'm just going to echo the sentiment that a lot of people are are throwing out there. Try to watch it without knowing anything about it. That's the best way I think to go into it. But even if you you know you can watch the trailer, it doesn't really give too much away. But I think the best way is to just go in completely fresh. Uh, and it's amazing. I loved it. And I can see, you know, I've already seen people and, you know, I'm in some Facebook groups with, for horror stuff. And obviously there's going to be people shitting on it. because <laughs> That's how social media works. But for the most Indeed. part, I think it's pretty well liked and I loved it. I actually watched Sinister again last night for the first time since it was in theaters. Cool. Um, and I enjoyed it. I didn't really like it that much when I saw it originally. I think I liked it a little more. Maybe now, still don't think it's like a top tier horror movie. I know it's it's got a it's developed a huge cult following. It seems like the last ten years. It is me. I am huge cult following, <laughs> but it is good. I think part of the reason is it's a movie that's not afraid to show you you know kids dying. You know, you <laughs> see that right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, and that just makes me uncomfortable. Even though I can still watch movies with that kind of content and enjoy them, but um. It just gives you, it gives me kind of a queasiness sometimes, but the movie is good. I did like it. I'm I just not, I'm a huge fan, but I didn't realize, I knew that they had made a sequel. I didn't realize that the sequel focuses on the deputy from the first Sinister.
1: Uh, he's, he's a more of a major character in it, yeah, but well, it focuses on another family.
0: But like, I just fired it up last night as soon as I finished Sinister, because I'd never seen the second one. So I watched that one as well last night. And not as good, but it's it's a solid, you know, it's a solid horror sequel. So it's. Also- I
1: definitely think it's solid. I do not think it's as good as the first one. The first one to me is one of the best campfire horror movies ever made. Yeah. Um, I may have brought this idea up on a previous podcast. Certain movies to me feel like a story that someone would tell around a campfire. It's a very specific kind of horror movie. It can be any any subgenre of horror movie, but generally just feels like the kind of scary story that someone would sit around a campfire and tell you to try to scare the shit out of you. Mm-hmm. Sinister to me is one of the very greatest examples of that kind of movie to me. I think Sinister is a fucking classic. Far away, best thing Scott Derrickson ever made. And I I generally like Scott Derrickson movies. I don't mean that to be shitty. Right. Uh, but I, I I just think that's a fucking phenomenal horror picture. And I and I like you less. We're not liking it.
0: I'm kidding. <laughs> I definitely prefer the black phone to Sinister, but Sinister's pretty good.
1: Black phone also a great campfire horror movie. Black phone is fucking monstrous, dude. That movie's so good. I didn't expect it to be as good. That that you know that I might was... that might be up there and tie with Sinister.
0: <laughs> I was very surprised at how much I like Black Phone and I expected to like it, but I, I was really impressed with it. We've we've talked about it before on the
1: We have, have. And I'm sure we'll end up talking about it again because that's (laughs) what we do, but that's okay.
0: Uh, I've actually got a, this is a a subject that kind of encompasses uh, several movies, so I'm just going to list the movies and then kind of talk about, about, and and this is probably going to piss some people off, namely AJ, because I I know you like at least a couple of these movies quite a bit. (laughs) Ooh. And I'm going to kind of bag on them, but I'm going to try and bring it around at the end because I don't think any of these are bad movies. But
1: Okay. Well, I mean, all the same in advance. Fuck you. <laughs> um, these,
0: these are all movies, I think, at least the majority are Shutter exclusive uh, movies. Okay. So all horror flicks. Okay. Revealer, Glorious, Off-Season, The Cellar, Seance, The Long Night, Superhost, Castle Freak. These are all... Low budget, like small cast movies that you, know, you can see on Shutter, and they're not without their merits. But I've watched all these like over the last six months or so, and I always get the same feeling. I always feel like these are movies that are basically the script is planned and written around like the budget they expect they're going to have, and which isn't always a bad thing. Uh,
1: and is in his general operating procedure in low budget <laughs> horror.
0: Sure, uh, and, <laughs> I mean, and, historical made, and mostly they have good performances, <laughs> but they all seem to be like movies that would work well as like a 50 to 65 minute television episode, like maybe as part of like a Masters of Horror, one of those, which I've mentioned with off season specifically in a previous podcast. But like if they were part of an anthology like show rather than like an hour and 20 hour and 30 minute movie, which seems really dragged out in certain times. And I think that applies to kind of all these movies, with the exception maybe of Superhost, which I just watched a few days ago. Have you seen Superhost? I have
1: not. And I want to and and I have intended to same with the long night. Mm-hmm. I don't really give a shit about the Castle Freak remake. I really I will <laughs> I really doubt I will ever watch that., uh, the original is one of the few Stuart Gordon movies that just doesn't do it for me.
0: yeah um, well, the the remake is very different from the Stuart Gordon and not nearly as good, so <laughs> I guess uh, the, the only redeeming I, I didn't like Castle Freak at all. The remake. The only thing I did like was like the last 10 minutes when it gets fucking insane. OK, I would almost recommend you just fire it up and just fast forward to the last 15, 20 minutes and watch the ending. But yeah, it's not good anyway. Um, but yeah, these are all movies that I kind of like, but like I just feel like. I'm kind of watching the same thing over. Like, it's always a bunch of locked drone shots, and <laughs> long, atmospheric, just drag. Like, we got to get this thing to an hour 20. That's the bare minimum. We got to get it to this point so we can say it's a movie. It's and that's the way I kind of feel about all these movies. Although I did, again, I like Superhost a lot. The Long Night was decent. The Cellar, you know, I didn't really like The Cellar, actually. <laughs> Seance was pretty good. We we talked about that, I think, before I actually watched it. Uh,
1: I don't think Seance is a, a Shutter original, though. Okay. I love sounds. I thought it was a lot of fun, and yeah, it's kind of familiar, but I thought the writing was just interesting enough, and the the especially Suki Waterhouse. I thought she was great.
0: Yeah, I yeah. really liked the uh, the last act, uh, the last third. Yes.
1: Quite a bit. <laughs> it really kicks into a whole different gear there. And another
0: uh, another one that kind of fits into this is The Dark and the Wicked. Although it's not really the same because it's kind of doing a whole different thing. I feel like than a lot of these movies. Have you seen The Dark and the Wicked?
1: I have not. I've seen the preview, and I know I want to watch it. I'm trying to figure out a time when I can watch it with Tiffany, uh, my wife, and not terrify her, because right. it looks like something that would really scare her.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I I did like that one, and it, it was one that I felt was you know kind of needlessly long and drawn out. But the man, the ending to that movie. <laughs> G- after you watch it, we'll, we'll we'll discuss it in in detail because it cool. affected me. Um,
1: All right, I may just well wa- I may just go ahead and watch that on my own then. But
0: uh, but anyway, that's just kind of my my long rant about. So
1: basically, what you're saying is, since Shutter is a version of low budget indie horror movies or like direct to video horror movies that you know we would normally get direct to video, but are now it's a Shutter deal. So you're not really. 100% thrilled with the state of low-budget indie <laughs> TV horror is what I'm hearing.
0: It, you know what? It, it almost seems like that's the case, AJ. It
1: seems <laughs> like that's what you're saying. That's what I'm hearing from you.
0: And the, But the thing is, like, I kind of like most of these movies. I just Well, you know, when you were describing case. them, you are like, you know,
1: it, it sounds like you're saying they're, they're good as opposed to bad. They're just not inspiring to you.
0: Yeah, I just feel like they're they're not movies. <laughs> they're not, they're <laughs> short films. They they should be short films.
1: Damn, that's almost harsher than saying fuck them. <laughs> I think they suck. All right.
0: Like if you could just condense it down to 45 to 60 minutes, I think that they would be much better off. Anyway, <laughs> that that's that's again, most of those movies well-made, you know, good performances, not bad. They're worth watching, but uh yeah. Uh a couple more things I wanted to to throw out before we get out of here because we're going pretty long, <laughs> considering this is...
1: We this don't a, do boring. that.
0: You know, I went through, after Multiverse of Madness came out, I, I, I kind of went on a rainy kick. I, I watched pretty much everything in his filmography. And I wanted to talk a little bit about his, like, work for hire era, like the mid-90s up to Spider-Man, which also was kind of work for hire. We've... Uh, I kind of I kind of narrowed this down from The Quick and the Dead through The Gift. And I kind of wanted to get your take on some of these. I know we've talked about The Quick and the Dead before. Super Love fun. Love it. Yeah, amazing cast. Favorite Hackman performance? Probably not, but it's up there. It's great. Yeah, and you and you love *Quick* of the Dead too, right? I do. Yeah,
1: have it on Blu-ray.
0: Yeah, so much fun. Uh, A simple plan, maybe Bill Paxton's Apex. It's to me, it's either this or *True Lies*. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely a more involved performance from him, than that he also. Some people would probably say frailty, and I wouldn't argue too uh, too hard against that. Um,
1: That is what I was about to say is that simple plan and frailty are to me his fine well no a simple plan frailty and one false move are his three finest performances i get what you're saying about true lies but that's that's not a big enough meeting enough character for me
0: that's kind of a different thing
1: yeah it's kind of like chet in weird science (laughs) like he's great in it and i love watching him in it but in terms of a little more meat a little more substance uh those three and near dark is in between. You know, he's
0: great in that, too.
1: He's amazing in it, but you know, I kind of wish he was. Oh, well, I mean, he's Bill Paxton. <laughs> he's Bill Paxton, man!
0: Yeah, also underrated Bridget Fonda performance, I think, in that. As, Definitely. like, a sort of a femme fatale in, like, a weird way. Mm-hmm. Uh, always kind of giving bad advice that Paxton follows.
1: It's the weirdest thing, because all of her ideas are not bad ideas in theory. Yeah. It all makes sense. Like, it, it's like, where'd you, where the fuck did you come up with that? It's not like that. It's like, oh, right. okay, I see what you're, okay. That, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, and, and then, it, and,
0: Sorry, kind of brilliant ideas <laughs> in, in, in some ways, but they never work out.
1: No, because it's just the way things happen. You know, you can plan all day. And yeah, I, I think a simple plan might be the best movie that Raimi's ever made. I think it's a masterpiece, five out of yeah,
0: five. I, yeah, I'm not going to argue. I think it's definitely not my favorite of his movies, but it's, no. it may be his best. It's really yeah
1: it's just a, it's, it's it's a, it's a piece of work. I mean, it's, and
0: it's another, like just, you know, spoilers for a 24 year old movie, but (laughs) the, the last, the last few lines in that movie where Paxton, you know, he's, the money's gone. He's back to his old job. His wife's back to filing books away. And his voiceover narration is like, there are days when I don't think about any of it, about the money, about my brother, you know, but those days are few and far between. It's like, oh, my God, just walking to the river, man. Yeah. But it's again, pretty he's rough. got a kid now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. The book, the book ends up even rougher. Like, not long after the kid is born, she, like, half drowns or something, like, oh in the bathtub, gosh. and it gives her brain damage. So he's raising a disabled child, and he, like, and, like, the, the wife, I think, tells him that she feels it's them being punished. The evil things they did. It's it's rough, and they also they also lose all of their money. Their money near the end of the book, like he gets taken in some kind of like uh, land scheme, uh scheme.
0: Oh my god!
1: Yeah, he invested it because he thinks they have the money to do it, yeah. and then he realizes that oh fuck, you know we got to burn the money, and then he goes to pull the money out his money out of this thing, and he realizes he's been ripped off. So he doesn't have. He has to burn the money they found, and and he he will be working at that feed store until he's like well. Until he's dead. And so will his wife because they're barely able to survive now. The book is so harsh. The book is so harsh. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I was going to say on the uh, Blank Check podcast, where they're kind of going through Ramius' filmography one movie at a time, they mention the book and they don't talk about that, I don't think, but they do mention that Paxton's character has to kill even more people
1: in the book. Yes. Like he plans a. In one scene with a machete.
0: Yeah. He plans like a robbery. Uh huh. And it goes wrong and he has to kill some woman that it stumbles into it's like, it's just, man, <laughs> it made he me kind of read the book. But
1: yeah, he, uh, Sarah ends up spending one of the bills that he finds out is marked. Right. Or it. could be marked. So he goes to try to rob it to get the thing. And the guy behind the counter walks around and closes the door. And he's like, you're trying to rob me. Everything I do to you now, I'm going to be legally able to do. Do you understand that? <laughs> And it's like you realize this guy is like this big hulking religious dude who's actually been waiting for an excuse to harm somebody. (laughs) And so Hank has to kill him. And then this little lady comes around on it and he ends up killing her with a machete, with a machete. Yeah, it gets fucking dark. The the book is much more the book. I think you could call it horror. (laughs) (laughs) You could call it a horror novel, you know, a thriller. Sure. But it's it's pretty horrific. The book is, is great. It's more of a book,
0: morality tale, I guess.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. It's so, you know, that make it look like the bad guy did it. Mm-hmm. That destroys you. Destroys you. Yeah, I love that movie. I love that movie. I've uh, never yeah, seen that, her, uh, Love of the Game all the way through. Never I know seen you it gonna get to the to Not all the way through. I didn't dislike what I saw. Yeah. I was like, oh, you know, this is... Good for what it is, you know, as opposed to bad.
0: I, I really, I want to see that uh, in a in a theater when it came out, and I've always really liked it. I rewatched it for the first time in over a decade, probably when I was doing these Ramy rewatches And you know, Costner nails it. Not a big surprise there. He's great in yes. it. Uh, most of the baseball stuff is really good. I and I hate baseball essentially. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like baseball at all. But I'm a sucker for sports movies. You know, for the most yeah. part. And, you know, I, I can watch a movie about sports I don't care about. This is an example. So, yeah, all the baseball stuff's really good. The stuff that doesn't work is the love story part, which is probably over half the movie. Mm. Um, and Kelly Preston is, is the love interest. She's okay, but, like, there's just not enough there to make you really care about any of that stuff to me. So it's half of a really good movie. That's um, fair. That's fair. The uh, The Gift... It came out in 2000, right before he started working on Spider-Man. And I've I've watched this a few times in the last five six years. It's not perfect. It's got some really good like chiller ghost ghostly moments and really good performances from like Kate Blanchett. Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves is awesome as like this redneck piece of shit <laughs> life beater basically.
1: He's really intimidating in it. He's very
0: scary. But yeah, I I like The Gift. It's not a great movie, but I think it's it's definitely worth seeing for for like. If You're a big fan of like some of the actors that are in it, it's got a great cast. Uh, J.K. Simmons is in it, Greg Kinnear, Katie Holmes, Hilary
1: Swank, Giovanni Ribisi. It's yeah. got, yeah, it's got a killer cast. I, I think it's good as opposed to bad. I know that's I repeat myself so much, but it's it's <laughs> I good. Mean,
0: it's just it's not a great movie, like, no, I, I, you don't need to overpraise it, but it is no.
1: Good. I, it's not one of his best it's not one of the best movies of that year. It's not one of the best movies since 2000 it's it's nothing like that but i I don't think you'll hate yourself for watching it it's you it's watchable it's a good thriller it's got some real cool moments some real creepy shit like you said Kate Blanchett I do think that's one of her best performances if honestly she's, right. she's bringing the the high heat she's throwing hard yeah I like the gift a lot. Probably out of five, I'd give it three and a half or maybe even four on a day that I'm feeling particularly loving towards that kind of movie. <laughs> but yeah, it at least gets three and a half. It's it's solid B to B plus. Yeah, yeah, I dig it.
0: And then, of course, he went on to become one of the biggest directors in the world with the three Spider-Man movies. And yeah, I love Sam Raimi. couple more things I'll try and squeeze out before we roll out of here. I rewatched for the first time in quite a while Tango and Cash. Mm. uh this movie is absolutely nuts it is uh it could only exist in action movie land uh,
1: of the late 80s specifically
0: yeah and i mean there's a bunch of stuff you could say about how crazy it is but i'm just going to kind of focus on the, the 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 finale sort of the big rock quarry fight where they're mm-hmm. in the punisher's battle van basically mm-hmm. yeah and the bad guy whose secret headquarters is like in a rock quarry for some reason. And he's got an army and the army guys have SUVs with machine guns mounted to the hoods Uh shooting at Tango and Cash. It's just fucking bananas. And weirdly they have like Stallone's Stallone is Tango, right?
1: Ray Tango is Stallone and Gabe Cash (laughs) is Kurt Russell was going to be Patrick Swayze. Did you know that?
0: I don't think I did know that.
1: Patrick Swayze you know, was cast and left to go do Roadhouse. There was some kind of delay or yeah. some kind of issue. And in the interim, Patrick Swayze, like, I think he did the smart thing. He kind of saw, because, I mean, regardless of what you think of the finished movie, apparently it was a very troubled production. Yeah. And I think Patrick Swayze was like, you know what? I'm going to go do this other thing they're offering me called Roadhouse. I think this is going to work yeah. out better for me. Yeah. And, of course, it did. It worked out better for everybody. I enjoy Tango and Cash. I don't think it's good. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's a, a good movie. I, I enjoy watching it because it's got a lot of elements I like, but I it is very fucking bug nuts. I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> it's out of its mind. And I wonder, I would like to sit down with some of the people who made these decisions and go, <laughs> what exactly was your thought process when you decided we're going to do this? Yeah. Where did that come from? And I would imagine a lot of the response would usually be like, you know, we didn't have anything else we could come up with and also cocaine.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah,
0: the final like, you know, they had the final fight with Tango and Cash. They face off with two bad guys. So they each have their own like mano a mano fight towards the end uh-huh. and Cash fights Byron. Is that, is that right or is it Brian?
1: Brian James.
0: Brian James. OK, who's in a lot of stuff in like the 80s and 90s. And he's a, character a lot of we've good seen stuff. throughout the movie. He's kind of a pivotal henchman to the bad guys. And Tango fights an unnamed karate man. Who has no lines in the entire movie, and that's his big fight at the end. Mm. Uh, it's just puzzling. Like the whole, it's it's a it's a crazy movie. I do like it a lot, but it's, oh, not, it's you, you're fun. right. It's not a good movie.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's too messy to be a good movie. I think in it, messy in a really. It's not good chaos. It <laughs> just it just feels like it feels like they're making up most of it as they go along and sometimes that kind of loose vibe can be can feel good and this doesn't this kind of it helps you watch it but it doesn't make no it does not it does not look or feel good (laughs) but it's definitely fun it's definitely fun i understand why a lot of people have such a soft spot for it yeah no no hatred of tango (laughs) and cashier no hatred here
0: uh last thing i got i've kind of been going through and watching the Captain America movies, not just his movies, but every Captain America movie from the MCU <laughs> series. So I started with Captain America and watched his movies and the Avengers movies, kind of all the way through to Endgame. Okay, uh, and I'm not going to go into all the details about all the. I love all those movies. I think Captain America's trilogy is the best of the, the outside of like the Avengers for all the MCU franchises. Mm-hmm. And the way they stick to landing with like Steve Rogers and Peggy Carter's story, like the way it resolves in at the end of Endgame, like maybe it doesn't work if you think about it too much, but man, it just really hits when you see old Steve Rogers and then they flash back to him and Peggy in the forties, uh, yeah. you know, dancing. And each one of those Captain America movies retroactively strengthens the original cat, which. I like the first Captain America movie, the first Avenger. It's good. It's not one of the best Marvel movies, I don't think, but like yeah. Winter and Soldier makes the first Captain America better because it strengthens the Bucky Cap relationship. Sure. And so does, to a lesser extent, Civil War. And then Endgame, when you see how how much he's longing for that relationship with Peggy, in Endgame, like it really stre- it, it reinforces the first one even more. So that's all I really got to say. I, I love those the Captain America movie. He's my favorite of the characters in, you know, the Marvel uh, franchise.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to disagree with any of that. Um, I do think that cap civil war is kind of a stealth Avengers movie. Really? Uh, But I'm not going to complain about that shit. (laughs) And yeah, I mean the first, the first one is probably the least of them, but it also at the same time, the first Avenger is one of the most charming movies
0: I mean, it's very good. I like it a lot.
1: Yeah, and you know that it's got the old-timey appeal, and you know it it is just very charming. It's a lot of fun in a throwback adventure kind of way, and it's doing a specific thing that is really only done by that movie in the MCU. That era, that kind of vibe. The Raiders of the Lost Ark, World War II, Joe Johnston's Rocketeer thing. You know, Um, but yeah, I mean, to the Winter Soldier is better. And I know what you mean about strengthening the Bucky stuff. Civil War is is amazing. It was my, one of my favorite movies of that year. And then, yeah, I mean, you have the two Avengers movies, which are, I mean, uh, the two Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame, which are still, to me, a couple of the best superhero movies ever and some of the best work in all of the MCU. And I love all those movies. Uh, but, yeah, that ending where it's just them dancing, you know, well earned, man. It's the happy ending that we all hoped. That they would get, and I feel like they earned it, and they did it in a way that felt right. It didn't feel like a cheat. So yeah, I'm I am with you there, brother.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, uh I was gonna ask you about Love and Thunder. Have you watched Love and Thunder yet?
1: No, I I actually really like Love and Thunder a lot. I know that a lot of people are like, it's weird because it doesn't make sense to me in the sense of I loved Ragnarok, but this was too far. And it's like, really? Yeah. Like this is just more of it. Yeah, I get how it's kind of more of that like because of the success of ragnarok taika feels emboldened to go even farther in his goofy ass direction but there's still stakes and there's still stuff you care about and there's still you know character development and everything with jane i think is i really liked it i thought it was a lot of fun i don't know what the fuck people's problem is i don't know what they want <laughs> from these things you know it's like they they're like i like this but I don't like that. And it's like, but but this is what you were asking for. No, not like this. Oh, okay. (laughs) I just I don't fucking know anymore. I had a lot of fun. I thought it was pretty great. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as Ragnarok, but I definitely enjoyed it a lot. And everybody keeps trying to act like this phase four is all failures. And I'm like, one, they've all made stupid money. So they're obviously not you know, a commercial failure Two, creatively speaking, I have enjoyed every single one. I know a lot of people that have enjoyed every single one. And everyone's like, it's not as focused now that they don't have, you know, this Thanos thing and the infinity stones. And I'm like, I remember all you bitches used to hate when they would fucking talk about the infinity stones or when they would have to have Thor go into his pool to, you know, <laughs> introduce that shit. You all were like, it's pulling away from the movies. And now you want that kind of shit again. Now you want this kind of focus. Shut up. You don't know what you want. You guys are all fucking pirates. <laughs> You're all liars. I think they know what they're doing, you know, or they know enough. They've, they've been laying groundwork, I think, for the quantum mania, the mm-hmm. alternate multiverses and all the stuff that Kang is going to come out in. Mm-hmm. I do think they know what they're doing. And I think people need to rethink how it was in the first couple of phases of Marvel up into up until Infinity War. They, they had a bunch of different movies doing a bunch of different things, and that's what they're doing now. Fucking chill out. Can you <laughs> chill out? Can you chill out, people, just a little bit? Can you? no
0: okay no they they cannot (laughs)
1: they cannot they have uh
0: yeah i i like love and thunder a lot too i i definitely don't think it's as good as ragnarok and i'm kind of on the fence like i do think it's too goofy I, i and i feel like it doesn't balance well with like the story of gore the god butcher which is very uh serious and kind of tragic yeah um so the tone's a little wonky at times. I mean, it is a ton of fun. It's it's hilarious. It's probably the funniest MCU movie. It's it's basically a straight comedy with some action, you know, <laughs> in it. And some
1: um, some drama.
0: Yeah, yeah. A some
1: bit. dramatic stuff like gore stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's got the screaming fucking goats. <laughs> and I laughed every fucking time they did that. Every yeah. time. Every time, Chris, I laughed.
0: And, you know, when they did Ragnarok, which probably definitely a top 10 MCU movie, maybe... Maybe not top five. hardest, But it's thing. close.
2: It's close yeah, to top it's five. In
0: the, it's in the conversation. But even when that came out, I was like, I like the comedy stuff. I think it works. Because, I mean, even the Dark World and the original Thor, there are a lot of comedic elements in those movies. Not, obviously, as gung-ho as Wattiti. <laughs> no, and they're not as successful. They're, it's yeah. not as funny. Yeah. But I, I always, even then, I in Ragnarok, I was like, I like the comedy. I kind of wish... Thor was still a little more serious and more grounded, like with the crazy stuff happening around him. But Chris Hensworth didn't want to do that, and you got to keep him happy. So I get it. Uh, and it and turns great.
1: out, yeah, it yeah, turns he's, out he's really talented at comedy. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's very funny. So yeah, I thought I did think Love and Thunder took it too far, but it was. <laughs> It was still really fun, and I really liked it. Um, we, we've gone pretty long. This will probably be our longest episode ever. Awesome. <laughs> but we covered two movies and a bunch of King stuff and Flanagan stuff, and I ran on and on about movies I've been watching lately. So I guess it's going to do it for small screeners uh, in October. AJ, you want to let people know where they can find you on the Internet?
1: They can find me on the Twitter at at Haunted Gels. Please come say hi. Let's talk about movies. Let's be cool. Let's have a good time. Let's love the love of movies, y'all.
0: And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at BrodyMan34. You can also hear me on another podcast called Unspoken Issues, uh, where I dis- discuss 1990s comic books with my buddy Jesse Starcher. You can follow the show's Twitter and Instagram pages at SmallScreeners. Uh, it'd be cool if you could leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher, or just tell somebody about the show. And next month, we've got Universal Soldier... Regeneration. A rogue
2: threatening to blow up Chernobyl has armed themselves
0: with the next generation. Universal soldier. We're very good today. The mission is simple. Gentlemen, we'll be fighting against the perfect soldier. The battle. We're going
2: in. Impossible.
0: I'm back. Oh.
2: Is to start him up again. Going back, I'm going to fight, but standing in his way, not one, but two. I've over the song before. This time, Andre the Pitbull Arlovski and Dolph Lundgren again take on jean Paul Van Damme in the final showdown. Universal Soldier. Regeneration, coming soon.